KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. My name is Mike Hagan. This is Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a minute. There you have it. That's Tobias Epstein from Holy Frog. He'll be with me for a little while here in the studio. Thanks to Toby for that one. It's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. And uh, just about five minutes after 11 p.m. now on the 2nd of October. Already into October. And the time is flying by. All right. So um, tonight, Alan Goldstein, Dr. Alan Goldstein, the uh, professor of molecular biology at Alfred University in New York and an expert in the outrageous field of nanobiotechnology. He'll be with us in about an hour here. Uh, We've got Tobias playing some music for us for uh, 
at least this first hour. We'll see how long we can get him to stick around. But we've got music from Holy Frog lined up to play for the rest of the night. And lots of other stuff going on. But first, uh, let me get my, my duties out of the way here, okay? Thanks to Debbie Johnson, as always. Free Range Radio Theater, 10 p.m. on Mondays every week. Starting things off uh, for me an hour earlier and uh, setting it up nicely for Radio Orbit, as she always does. Before that, Kelvin and Jason doing it up. Jazz plus blues equals sex discussions tonight. I'm not sure what's going on in that program. But at any rate, uh, Tech Radio, always cool with John and Justin. Jeff Wheeler starting it off with Uncommon Light, 3 to 5 p.m., getting things going every Monday. So, all right, big thanks to Louis Humphreys, a.k.a. Yeshe Dorje, and the wonderful healing music of Padma Sound System. If you missed the show, it's on the web. That was last week. Uh, you can check it out in my archives at www.mikehagan.com. And if you're interested in the music that was played last week, you can find that on the music archives page as well. Okay, tonight, as I said, Dr. Alan Goldstein, nanobiotechnology, the outrageous implications of the work that is being done today, not 50 years from now, not even five years from now. This stuff is knocking on the door. So uh, that's coming up in just a bit. We had Dr. Goldstein on the program back in May, and five months in the field of nanobiotechnology is like 50,000 years. So a lot happens in five months and we'll get caught up with Alan in just a little while, okay? As I said, we'll also have the music of uh, Tobias Epstein throughout the show and uh, wonderful independent music, certainly here from Columbia, Missouri. His band is called Holy Frog. We'll talk to Toby in just a little while about what he's up to and lots of other stuff in store. So stick around, okay? We'll have Toby play us another one here while I get my ducks in a row. And uh, we'll be back in just a minute, okay? It's Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, and on the web at kopn.org, and Mike Hagan, H-A-G-A-N.com. All right, one more time. Tobias Epstein, give us something here, Toby.
Yes, I'll keep moving on, waiting for that tattoo sun to shine. Italian sun, then it's changed my mind. I didn't recognize it last night. But as I'm lying next to you, I look into your eyes and know that I'm running out of time with you. Alrighty, there you have it. What's that called, Tobias? That's called Girl from Argentina. Girl from Argentina. Yeah, the first song I ever really wrote. <laughs> really? Yeah, like eight years ago. No so, way. Yeah. All right, great stuff. Well, look, uh, thanks for coming down. I want to say hi. And um, everybody, one more time, that's Tobias Epstein. He's one of the main uh, figures in the band Holy Frog, which I guess uh, you guys consider yourself a Columbia band. Yeah. Yeah. How long has the band been together here? Uh, we were, we've been pretty serious for about five years, I guess. We kind of uh, fooled around for a couple of years and then decided to make a push about 2001 or so. All right. What, uh, for the people who aren't familiar, uh, tell us a little bit about, uh, obviously this is your, your own sort of uh, independent style when you play by yourself. Is the band similar to the stuff you're playing? Or um, how many yeah. Pe- how many people are in the band? It's only two people. Really? So in some ways it's, you know, it's just a two-piece. Who's the other guy? Uh, it's Kurt Kitson is the other guy I play with. Uh-huh. And uh, it's uh, sim- it's pretty much this, just with um, some added sounds, I guess. Um, Kurt's a guitarist as well? Yes, there's it? just two guitar players. Sometimes he plays keyboard. Um, but on top of that, that's about, that's about it. All right. Yeah. Okay, everybody. Well, look, we'll have more from uh, Toby. We'll talk a little bit more as we roll along the program here. But uh, on the web, if you're interested in the music, you can check, uh, you can check them out at www.holyfrog.com. And you got a couple CDs, actually. I've got... Um, where are they? Let's move over here. <laughs> I'd rather go to the room, but I'll grab them here in a few. I'm going to play some stuff off of that later. But you've got uh, at least two out. Is yeah. One sort of an EP, mm-hmm. and then the other one's got 12 or 13 tracks yeah. on it. Yeah, it's so, full length. All right, so uh, everybody, you got that to look forward to over the next two hours and 45, mu- uh, 45 minutes, right? We've got Toby here with me, and we'll play their music all night, Okay. Let's see. Uh, let me say hello to everybody listening over the web, live or otherwise. Uh, we are streaming right now and every week via Cosmic Waves Radio Network, www.cosmicwavesradio on the web. Thanks to all the guys and girls over there for making it happen live on the net for us every Monday night. And thanks also to Larry, the web wizard, as always, doing great stuff. Um, he's got a couple of um, new desktops and screensavers and some other interesting stuff you can go there and grab at the site if you like, just uh, for coming over to say hi. And to all the people out there sending art and music, that's what it's all about. That's how uh, Toby and I got together. I ran into him at one of my favorite music venues and slash watering holes. And um, there's a lot lot of uh, talented artists and, and, and music that sort of goes through the few, don't yeah. you think, Tony? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and Toby sort of... Uh, uh, does a little work down there for the guys, but also yeah. performs there. Yes. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so there's wonderful music and art being done all over the place, and we're really into sharing it here. So send it to me, or send it to Larry, and we'd love to check it out and play it if it fits and all that good stuff. All right. So anyway, one more time, hats off uh, to Larry for putting all that together on the web for me. I really appreciate everything that he does. And if you'd like to check it out and let us know what you think, I'd appreciate it. Just go over to MikeHagan.com, and you'll have access to everything we're doing. 
So take a look, see. All right, let me know. What uh, let me know what you think. All right, the forum, by the way, has been revitalized. There's lots of interesting topics being discussed over there. Some people joining up recently. I appreciate it. Uh, Ken Stedman posting some pretty interesting stuff over there over the last week or so. And the live chat room is up and active right now. I'm not sure who's over there. I'll have to peek in in a few minutes. But to everybody listening and uh, joining in over there, thanks and hello. And we'll look in there for questions and comments uh, after we get going with Dr. Goldstein. All right? Okay, the email address here, if you want to get a hold of me, is orbitradio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O, orbitradio at AOL.com. On the web, one more time, Mike Hagan, H-A-G-A-N.com. And let me tell you a couple things that are coming up over the next few weeks, and then we'll play. Uh, we'll have Toby play another song for us here in a couple minutes, and then we'll do space weather and see how much time we have to do some news and stuff before before Dr. Goldstein joins us at the top of the hour. Okay. All right. Uh, as I said tonight, Alan Goldstein, professor of biomaterials at Alfred University, a guy at the forefront of this whole nanobiotechnology revolution, and he is a trip. If you missed the show that he did uh, with us in May. It was a it was a, a, a real brain twister, and you can go and download that from the archives page if you'd like to listen to it at a at a future date. But it's really something else, and I'm sure we'll pick up where where we left off. But uh, Dr. Goldstein is really at the edge of this whole thing, and uh, it's pretty interesting when you when you find out what's really happening. And he's got saying, "Hey, look, this is what we're doing," and I just thought someone should know. <laughs> <laughs> it's your money, your tax money, and all this, you know. And just, just wanted to, don't say I didn't tell you, you know. That's the sort of thing that he's doing. So, uh, anyway, we'll see what happens with Dr. Goldstein in just a little while here. Jonathan Zapp, uh, a gentleman that uh, John Major Jenkins, as a matter, uh, as a matter of fact, hooked me up with, and Jonathan Zapp will be on the program next week. That's on the ninth. The 16th, I'm not sure. We'll probably do maybe just an open line show, catch up on news and stuff, and I'll just do the show by myself. The 23rd, I've got Jan Irvin, and I'll tell you a little bit more about him in the next couple weeks. We'll have Kent for the Halloween special, as always. That's on the 30th of October. Kent Stedman from CyberspaceOrbit.com. We've done Halloween with Kent for the last two years, and we will continue to do that. He's great. We tell ghost stories or something. I don't know. And other stuff, Jim Beard, my wonderful Lakota grandfather. And uh, Stephen Buner, I spoke with Stephen just a couple days ago. We're going to try to get Steve back on the air in uh, December or January. And John Jenkins and Jay Widener, all that stuff coming up at the end of the year probably. So anyway, that's what's going on, all right? And I'm really excited about it. There's a lot of great programs coming up. The winter is going to be an interesting one. We're now December 2006, so for everybody paying attention to this whole 2012 thing, you got six years to go. And... Uh, I'll tell you what, it sure is getting interesting. Six years is a long time, man, the way things are moving these days. Uh, so anyway, uh, speaking of moving quickly, we will do it. We'll have another song here from uh, Toby. What do you want to play for us, Tom? Um, God, I don't know. Uh, I'm going to uh, play a, a sort of bluesy song that I, I don't have a name for it yet. So. All right, one more time. This is <coughs> Tobias Epstein. You can find out info on the web about uh, Tobias, on, uh, from my website, just go to MikeHagan.com and click on the music archives. We'll have some information there from here on out. And uh, also uh, his own stuff at HolyFrog.com. And there's a, a MySpace page as well. It's MySpace.com slash Tobias Epstein, E-P-S-T-E-I-N. All right, go for it, Toby. <coughs> Thank you. 
woman. You deserve a better man. Let's skip over the dull part. We'll go straight to the end. It really is a shame 'cause we could have been good friends. Well, I saw you walking the other day, arms around another man. Yes, it could have been an illusion. No, I don't understand. Either way you look at it, I'm no longer a man. In my heart, 
couple more there from Tobias Epstein from Holy Frog. This is Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. Toby, thanks very much. Oh, thank you. All right, look, take a break, man, and go have uh, some of that good root beer. Right on. And uh, I'll be back with you, I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 minutes, okay? All right. All right, everybody, it's Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. Let's see, it's about 25 after the hour. Let's see, let me take care of some business here. Look at my little log here and see what I have to talk about. All right, colors. Bear with me here. Program support for KOPN comes from Colors. Colors is an educational uh, organization made up of local independent businesses, community organizations, and citizen members who would like you to know that locally owned businesses create more jobs locally and have the potential of providing better wages and benefits than chain stores do. Information is available at colorsalliance.org. Colors Dollars participants for the upcoming fund drive will include Lynn Maloney Acupuncture, Greenway Massage, and Ragtag Cinema Cafe. All right. Let's see here. Space weather. Aurora Watch. Solar wind stream. I'm saying this every week now. A solar wind stream hit the Earth on the 30th of September. We're still seeing the effects of it tonight. Bright auroras from Scandinavia to Alaska and uh, over Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota. Even further south than that. Not quite down to the mid-latitudes of Missouri where we are, but not too far north of here. People getting amazing displays in the sky, uh, even to the unaided eye. And... uh, There's some wonderful pictures on the web at spaceweather.com. And go to the Aurora Gallery, and you can check out some great stuff that's been shot over the last couple weeks. There is another solar wind storm that is approaching the Earth right now, and it's going to arrive tomorrow, probably tomorrow, maybe the 4th. And we're going to see more of this Aurora activity for sure. All right? Okay, another thing, uh, a new comet in the night uh, in the sky. There's a comet that's been identified. They're calling it Comet Swan. At present, it's just a little too dim for the naked eye, but uh, it is a wonderful sight through binoculars or a small telescope. And again, pictures on the web. And pretty soon you're going to be able to see for yourself, uh, because um, in just a few days, uh, that comet will be swinging around the sun, and uh, by the second week of October, it should be visible in the evening sky at a more civilized hour, because right now you've got to get up really early before dawn. It, the comet sort of rises just before the morning sun does right now. Um, but that's going to change in a couple weeks here. But it should be a wonderful sight. They're not uh, predicting that it's going to get any brighter than uh, than it is sort of right now, but you never know. And for those interested in this sort of thing, there is an interesting story that's developing over at cyberspaceorbit.com. Kent has been following up and sleuthing out this a particular story about a Russian astronomer who uh, has believes he's identified a very big comet that's going to come in the proximity of the Earth in October. And so that's sort of an interesting one that we're sort of keeping our eyes on. So, All right, what else? Uh, near-Earth objects, nothing really to speak of. I haven't mentioned it very much over the last couple months because they really don't post anything new anymore. It's like the only time they post anything, it's after something's already gone by us. So they're sort of identifying uh, identifying them, I guess. Uh, 
but it doesn't appear to be a lot of things that they're predicting. It's amazing how many things are zipping by us that don't get much press, you know. And uh, nobody even knows it's happening. But there's things whizzing around all the time. It's outrageous. All right, let's see. What else is happening here? All kinds of workshops and international uh, data assimilation conferences and the 57th International Astronomical Congress is going on in Valencia, Spain. Right now, started today. Oh, the third international workshop on astrodynamic tools. I love reading these things. There's all kinds of things going on all the time. The first international workshop on mixed signal integrated systems for space. The EARA workshop, supernovae and their host galaxies. Asteroids approaching, closest approach to Earth, all kinds of things. Zipping around, asteroid 28918, asteroid 6030, asteroid 6227, all coming close to Earth in the next couple days. Oh gosh, what else? World Space Week starts on the 4th. So if you want to be spaced out, now's the time. Well, in a couple days at least. Alright, what else? One more thing. We'll talk about a couple things happening up there in the sky. And then... Um, I got a few news stories, and uh, I'll peek in there to the chat room and see what's up with all you guys, all right? All right, let's see. Today is what? What did we say? The second. So tomorrow, the third, coming up here uh, in just a half hour or so. If you get up early on Wednesday um, uh, before sunrise, the uh, five brightest objects visible in the sky will be Sirius, what they call the dog star. That'll be in the south-southeast. You'll see Capella, the mother goat star. That'll be west-northwest, uh, if you just looked overhead. Rigel, that's a star in Orion's foot, in the south-southwest. Uh, and uh, Procyon, uh, I think they, they actually call it the lesser dog star in the southeast. And you'll see Saturn shining in the east, or the north east-northeast, I guess. All right? An hour after sunset on Wednesday, the moon will be in the east-southeast and rising, and it'll be getting close to full. The moon's full, I think, on the 6th, or late in the 6th, on the 6th, Friday. And it'll be getting beautiful and bright over the next few days. It's going to be awesome, the moon, in the next couple of days, all right? Uh, at sunset, as a matter of fact, on the um, on the 5th, which is Thursday, the moon will just be about 7 degrees up over the horizon. And, uh, you know, that's about, probably about 7, 7.15 our time here in Missouri, so figure out wherever you are, but it'll be low on the horizon. And Mercury won't be far from there. Jupiter won't be far up in the southwest. And there's some great stuff happening in the skies over the next few days and into the weekend. So go outside and look up. All right, you might see something amazing. Never know. All right. Okay. Let's see what's happening in the news. What's happening in the chat room? Let's see. First of all, let's say hi to Soul. Nice to see you over there. And I want to tell you a story that uh, interested me, or I'll read a little bit about it to you here. This is from. Um, a guy whose name is Cliff Pickover who wrote it and it's pulled off of the Wisconsin uh, University of Wisconsin website anyway, listen to this here's the uh, the starter 
The physicists discovered that the structure of a brain cell is the same as the entire universe. <laughs> and then they quote Abdul Baha, and they say, Oh God, guide me, protect me, make me a shining lamp and a brilliant star. One is only micrometers wide, the other is billions of light years across. One shows neurons in a mouse brain, the other is a simulated image of the universe. Together, they suggest the surprisingly similar patterns found in vastly different natural phenomenon. And then they show two amazing photographs, one of a brain cell and one of a uh, you know, compilation of images to make up the known universe in, in the sense of the word when we're talking about space. And they lay them out next to one another, and it's absolutely amazing, these two images. I'll read something a little bit. I'll read a little bit more about it to you here, okay? And you can see this over on my website. It's linked uh, down in the news section, okay? Mark Miller, a doctoral student at Brandeis University, is researching how particular types of neurons in the brain are connected to one another. By staining thin slices of a mouse's brain, he can identify the connections visually. The image above shows three neuron cells on the left, two red ones and one yellow, and their connections. And uh, then the, this image is there. It sort of requires you to see it, but it's well worth going to look at. And then this is the caption underneath the other image, which is uh, a depiction of the, quote-unquote, the universe. You know, I'm not sure. Anyway, an international group of astrophysicists used a computer simulation last year to recreate how the universe grew and evolved. That's sort of an arrogant statement. But anyway, the simulation image above is a snapshot of the present universe that features a large cluster of galaxies surrounded by thousands of stars, galaxies, and dark matter, etc. And, uh, you know, I don't know. It's more intuitive than anything else. I don't know if science is ever going to prove anything, quite frankly. But certainly the universe appears to be self-similar across scale. We see the same things in atoms that we see in galaxies. And the main thing seems to be spin. Everything's rotating. Everything's in orbit, as it were, around other things. And I don't know. Everything in my world and in that view is alive because we're alive. And uh, we're the ones that are observing the whole thing. And we've had certainly 500 years of arrogance that set us back and we've forgotten how alive the world really is and the universe but much of that is coming back because these things aren't coincidences you know who was it was uh, we've said it before there was P.W. Bridgman who said a coincidence is what you have left over after you've applied a bad theorem <laughs> so there's a reason why the brain cell looks like the universe because they're both intelligent it is an intelligent universe, and there's intelligence all around us. Everywhere, in the plants, the animals, our own human being, friends, you know, the fish, the fish people, as my grandfather Wallace used to call them, the rock people, the stone people, you know. In, in the Native American tradition, in the Lakota tradition, you know, the rocks and the stones are alive you know and the trees are alive and you know the whole forest is and it's really a better representation of the world I think than than the one where everything is dead and nothing is alive uh, except human beings which are somehow supposed to be uh, you know separated from the rest of the whole situation 
even though, you know, it's weird. I went to the zoo <clears throat> on Saturday. My f- mother and father-in-law were in town, and they helped us out for a little while. You know, we have a new baby in the house. And anyway, on Saturday, we we drove to the St. Louis Zoo. We took my son Alex and the new baby and grandma and grandpa and the whole family, Ashley and I, and we all went to the zoo. And, you know, I'm not a big fan of zoos, but... Uh, on the one hand, it's it's the it's it's one of the few ways where where people can actually see some of these creatures, you know, when they could never see it uh, in any other way because of the nature of our culture. But the zoo, in and of itself, you know, is just this cage, it's just a big cage for wild animals. And you know, if you expect to see the natural behavior of an animal, if you expect to see, you know, what an animal is like in its natural environment, well, I mean, to try to you know, you might be able to fool a three-year-old, but you can't fool the animal. It knows, you know, that that ain't home, you know. The painted trees on the backdrop aren't the same as the ones in the forest. So, at any rate, we went there, and I was fascinated by the obvious feeling of so many people at the zoo that they were so separate from these animals, that they somehow were not animals, and, gosh, I mean, we went into the primate house, and, man, I mean, it was a really powerful thing for me. I was very, you know, I felt bad, quite frankly, and you can call me a puss or whatever, I don't care, but, you know, I felt the emotions or something of, of some of these animals. There was, in particular, these two, like, lemur monkeys that were at the top and the back corner of their cage, and they were just sort of huddled next to one another, literally with their arms around one another, holding one another. And, I mean, God, if the look on their face said anything, you know, it was like they just were sad and scared or something. And, I don't know, it just seemed like hard to substitute, you know, that 20 by 20 cage. 20 by 20 by 20, I might add, you know, it's got a ceiling on it, too. The rainforest doesn't have a ceiling. And, um, anyway, it's just sort of a shame how people just look at them as just these dumb animals, and it's just fun to go look at them, and, you know, and, I don't know, it seems a little bit sad. But at the same time, you can learn a great deal if you're paying attention at the zoo. So, as always, two sides to every story. So there you have it, right? A brain cell, the same as the universe. Fractal self-similarity all around us, up and down, for sure. And uh, Cliff Pickover, by the way, he's an interesting guy. He wrote, a, he wrote a book called Sex, Drugs, Einstein, and Elves. And it's a pretty interesting read uh, as well. So uh, thanks for that um, observation, Cliff. All right, what else we got going on here? Uh, in the news, what do we have here? There's a great cover uh, an old cover from Omni Magazine that I've got up on the web that Larry uh, did maybe 30 years ago, and it's a great image that sort of brings back this whole idea of, of of the fractal nature of the universe. Anyway, let's see what else we have here. Einstein's magnetic effect is measured on a micro scale. This is another story that sort of represents the same idea that we're seeing things up and down the scale. Uh, what else? Story here. Lazarus microbes immortality secret revealed. Scientists have discovered a novel genetic repair process that allows 
a, heart, a hardy desert microbe to die and resurrect over and over again. They're calling it the Lazarus microbe. That's from LiveScience.com, by the way. Pretty interesting story from a real good source. And it's, if, you, if you go a little bit further deeper into that, um, you'll find it's not, uh, it's not just a, a hocus-pocus story. It's uh, a story that was uh, researched and published in the journal Nature. And they're talking about it leading to new forms of regenerative me- medicine and uh, even you know, something that will allow scientists to someday bring dead cells in our own bodies back to life. So lots of interesting stuff happening there. What do we have here? The University of California, Berkeley, announced it is delivering more than 250 hours of educational content, including course lectures and symposia, free of charge through Google Video. Visitors to the new UC Berkeley webpage will be able to view or download a half dozen UC Berkeley courses in their entirety, including physics for the future and all kinds of other things. Another interesting story. You can find that on the web. Uh, that's from Physorg, but all these stories are on my website at uh, Mike Hagen, H-A-G-A-N, Com, and just scroll down the front page there, and you'll see uh, the news just sort of posted one story after another just as you scroll down the page, all right? Uh, what else, for example? Antimatter discovery could launch new era of physics. The discovery that a bizarre particle travels between the real world of matter and the spooky realm of antimatter three trillion times a second may open the door to a new era of physics, Fermilab researchers announced Monday. I don't know. That's another one that I just that I announced that they're just peeing into the wind. All right. Um, well, let's see here. Why don't I see if I can convince Tobias to come back in here and play another song or two for us, and I'll get Dr. Goldstein on the telephone here, and we'll uh, move along with the show. All right. And let's see, what else? Uh, yeah, as I said, it's Mike on the web, MikeHagan.com. And if you want to find information about my musical guest of the evening, you can do that on the web at HolyFrog.com. And uh, great stuff. And I'll play some more, uh, I'll actually play some stuff, uh, recorded stuff from them uh, a, little bit la- a little bit later in the program. So, okay, hi, Toby. Thanks for, uh, hey, thanks for sticking around, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, what do you want to do here? Uh, I can play a tune, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, play a tune, and I'm gonna make a quick phone call here, okay. and then we'll um, keep going. Right? All right, right. All right, everybody. This is uh, one more time, Tobias Epstein, and it's Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit. Back in just a few minutes, okay?
get up and dust off the shoe. Thank you very much. All right, number wonderful song there from Tobias Epstein. Great stuff. All right, uh, so what's uh, tell me a little bit more about what's going on with the band and what you guys have planned for the future. Uh, well, we've been on quite a bit of sabbatical lately, just playing about one or two shows a month uh, for the past summer, basically. Uh, we've got a show at Cooper's Landing on October 29th, which is mm-hmm. one of our favorite places to play. That's a that's a Friday night, right? Uh, actually, I'm not sure. I think it's a Friday Maybe. night. Cause I know the. No, I mean, it's a, it's a October 29th. 29th. The 30th is a Monday. It's a Sunday. It's Sunday night. night. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Halloween gig. What's that? A Halloween gig. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, we always <laughs> have to have one. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. So, um, uh, what else? Do you do you tend to do you ever play publicly by yourself? Do you ever do uh, solo occasionally? Thing? I mean, in the past, it's basically been a, uh, you know, sort of. Uh, fill in for somebody if they need some, you know I always get the sort of last minute call to play for 50 bucks of liquor or something like that you know which I'm totally happy to do yeah um, but other than that I basically just play, have played by myself at open mic for the at the Blue Fugue for like five years right, right, right. And that's about it what uh, 
what's your impression of the scene in Colombia as far as music in general? I mean, do you see uh, you know a lot of talent? You see a lot of people collaborating. Do you see friendships? Do you see a lot of infighting or? I don't see much infighting at all. There was a time a few years ago where um, I felt like the the scene was kind of up and coming, and uh, there was a little bit of I don't know weirdness or whatever between strange people and normal people. <laughs> and uh, but whatever that means. But yeah, well, whatever. <laughs> take what you want. But um, but now I think it's it's really great. There's I mean I can name off the top of my head a bunch of bands that I think are just amazing. So, who, who do you yeah. like around town right now? Uh, of course, my good friend Noah Earl. I'll yeah. Push for any day. Which by the way, he's playing on Wednesday to the Fugue, uh, along with Caulfield and the Magic, which is another. Uh, band that I like. Yeah, Casey and Joel, they've been up here before. Yes. And yeah. Noah's, uh, Noah and I are friends, and I, I want to play his music, but I'm trying to get him to come up here live. Yeah, absolutely. I don't want to play his recorded stuff. I'm waiting until I can get him here in the absolutely, studio. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, but anyway, he's great, no doubt. Yeah, and then there's also uh, some other bands. There's a band called Kodiak that I really like, uh-huh. and a uh, really uh, sort of uh, heavy, hard uh, band called Megazilla, which <laughs> is a great, great band. Great you know? name. Yeah. All right, well, look, hey, um, if you can stick around for another seven or eight minutes, maybe you can play one more for us Absolutely, toward yeah. the top of the hour. Mm-hmm. And then you can decide if you want to hang around or not, but I've got plenty of stuff to play if you'd like to take off. I know you've got work and stuff in the morning. Right. So, uh, anyway, okay, great. On the web, one more time, holyfrog.com. That's uh, Tobias Epstein, and we'll have another song at least uh, from him in a few minutes. Thanks again, Toby. All right, everybody, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. In just a few minutes here, about 12 minutes, top of the hour, we'll have Dr. Alan Goldstein, and we'll have what will promise to be an amazing conversation with him. As I said, if you missed the show that we did with Dr. Goldstein back in May, it was a real uh, brain twister, and I got so many comments about that program and people uh, sharing it with other people and just uh, you know shaking their heads and... Uh, just amazed at the information that we were talking about, and it's all out there. Uh, you know, no, there's not no, there's no state secrets here, uh, but uh, a very little press being given to some of the stuff that we'll be talking about tonight. And real serious and remarkable, strange, interesting, perhaps wonderful. Who knows? All everything wrapped into this whole nanobiotechnology uh, revolution and evolution, I guess, as as we'll be talking about it tonight with Dr. Goldstein, all right? There are a couple more minutes left where I can just sort of talk about some things since I have time here. There are some things in the news that I normally wouldn't talk about, but I think they're big deals, sort of in the mainstream news. And one is this story about Mark Foley. He's a congressman who's basically shown to be a pedophile, and he's going after young boys on the Internet and all this stuff. And it's th- th- that's a story that I think hasn't gotten enough press and in the meantime right when that happened we have school shootings and this stuff beginning and I'm always suspicious when things like that happen on top of one another because I know what a big story that uh, the Mark Foley story is if they keep following that thread I know what a big story it is and, and there are other people out there that know what a big story it is as well and you know, I'd be glad to see somebody finally get the courage to bust open all of this crap that's happening in our nation's capital and in many other places around this country with uh, abuse of children. All right? It's time to face up to what's happening and take care of it. And I appreciate anyone in the Federal uh, Bureau of Investigation, even if I talk crap about you in the past, if, you're, if your work is to protect the children, then good for you. All right? Keep doing it. 
Uh, and if you're in the press, please cover that stuff. It's important. All right, what else? Uh, the warrantless wiretap that the Congress just basically gave the president the permission to do all kinds of things, uh, including some things to American citizens. Not that it's okay to do it to anybody else, the things that they're talking about here. But anyway, it's being compared to the Enabling Act. It was something that was called uh, the Enabling Act that was passed by the German Reichstag back in 1933. That basically, the, re- the reason they call it the Enabling Act because it basically enabled the, the, the Chancellor, at the, uh, Adolf Hitler, who was Chancellor at the time, it basically gave him the powers to override the protections for freedom and liberty that were written into the German Constitution, the Weimar Constitution. And basically the rule was if he determined that so doing was necessary to protect the nation from terrorism, and it was a mock terrorism, by the way, the Reichstag uh, fire, which you know has now been shown to be a setup, the Reichstag fire that burned down the German, uh, uh, one of the major government buildings in Germany in the early 1930s, uh, it was blamed on the quote-unquote communists. And, and this is what enabled Hitler and his gang to take power. But it turned out that the whole thing was a, was a racket, that Hitler and his gang set the whole thing up. They burned down their own building and, and then blamed it on the commies. Sound familiar? And, uh, and then passed what was eventually called the Enabling Act. And it was under that act, of course, that Hitler established his dictatorship. Now, the U.S. version that just got passed a couple of days ago gives the president, and not just President Bush, any, any, any future president, the articles or the power to override Article 1, 2, 4, 6, and uh, the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, the Sixth Amendment, Eighth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution if he just so determines that it's just necessary to do so to protect the nation from terrorism, whatever the hell that means. Go look at the, go look at the definition of terrorism. Then you'll get a creepy crawly up your spine because it's as broad as the Missouri River. Hell, I'm a terrorist for just saying this. <laughs> That's why I have a radio show. At least, at least if I disappear, maybe someone will notice. <laughs> you know, it's too bad for the people who disappear and nobody notices. By the way, you know, I, lived, I, I lived in Germany for a while, and I lived in the barracks where some SS soldiers used to live. There's like a dormitory set up, a place called Strub Kasern in Berchtesgaden in Bavaria. And, you know, I know a lot about the history. I've crawled around the salt mines underneath there where they were doing all their business. And, you know, I've been to the camps, and, you know, I speak the language pretty well. The actual, the enabling act, it was called the, uh, the Irmachtigung Gesetz. And it was passed uh, by the German Parliament in 1933, and it was the second major step after the after the Reichstag fire decree, which uh, through which the the Nazis obtained you know these dictatorial powers, and it, and it was largely through through legal means, you know, just the way it's you know it's trying to be done here. They try to try to twist the law to make it legal, and then then you can't even it's it's just so twisted it's outrageous. Anyway, so um, let's see. All right, one more quick one here to sort of set us up for Dr. Goldstein, and then we'll have a song uh, from Tobias, and we'll get things going with uh, the whole world of nanobiotechnology with Dr. Alan Goldstein in just a few minutes here. Check this out. This is from uh, Science A Go-Go from just a couple days ago. Nanotech gone bad. Who are you going to call? 
While one would hope that the slightly eccentric and amoral mad scientist is a thing of fiction, the possibility for scientists to get it wrong or to lose control of their new creations remains grounded in reality. History has shown us that the development of new materials and technologies has led to the disruption and destruction of countless lives. But what can we do? Nobody has a crystal ball. All technology has a cost-benefit ratio, and the trick has been to predict what the likely risks will be. Who could have predicted the effects that the automobile industry would have had on the environment? Who can confidently say what the fallout from current technologies like cell phones will be? We just have to accept that while we mostly enjoy the lives that science brings us, any exciting new technology can open up a Pandora's box of horrors. If we were to play psychic, which advancing field of science is likely to, to be the next asbestos or thalatomide? The smart money, without a doubt, would be on nanotechnology. <laughs> I could continue, but uh, we'll let uh, Dr. Goldstein continue uh, where, where I left off. But in the meantime here, we're going to take a few minutes here. One more from Tobias Epstein of Holy Frog joining us here in the studio uh, for the last hour. Thanks to Toby for being here. And uh, one more, and then we'll come back with Dr. Alan Goldstein. Professor of Biomaterials at Alfred University, and a guy at the cutting edge of the whole nanobiotechnology uh, story that's just uh, unfolding as quick as uh, uh, you can imagine. So, all right, one more uh, from Tobias. What would you like to play for us? I'm going to play a song called Lisa. It's on our um, full-length album called Mind by Self. All right, all right. We'll hear it. This is Lisa. One more time, and uh, Holy Frog from My by Self. Mike, you're listening to Radio Orbit back in just a minute with Dr. Alan Goldstein. Turns out it never works that way. 
the door She's hooked on heroin and everyone knows it Lisa won't answer the door She's scared of the outside, she's seen it before Sitting by her window watching life go by Crawled up in the corner wasting time getting high But I'm sure she knows what she's doing Cause I don't know what it's like in her head to Radio Orbit with Mike Hagan on KOPN 89.5 FM. It's Mike, and uh, you're listening to Radio Orbit Straight Up Midnight, now October 3rd, 2006. In just a minute, Dr. Alan Goldstein. Quick thank you to Tobias Epstein from the wonderful local musicians Holy Frog. Find them on the web at holyfrog.com, and I'll have some stuff on my website in the music archives uh, in the next couple days, all right? All right, look, um, I think it was Nietzsche who said uh, in regard to nihilism, the strangest of all guests is now at the door. Well, Dr. Alan Goldstein goes to even weirder dinner parties than Friedrich Nietzsche, I think. And there are yet weirder guests seeking admission to the dinner party. And one of these weird guests is the nanobiobot. Dr. Alan Goldstein is a professor of biomaterials at Alfred University, and he's at the forefront of this amazing field of science, and we had the pleasure and privilege of talking with him uh, about four and a half months ago, and we're going to do it again right now. Dr. Goldstein, hello, and thank you very much for being back on the program. Oh, hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. How are you tonight? I'm doing fine. I don't know if I'm stranger than Nietzsche, but I'll do my best. <laughs> Maybe we should have scheduled the show for Halloween. <laughs> I've got weirder things for Halloween. Actually, I don't know if I do, actually. Hey, uh, do me a favor, and uh, if I could ask you to get a little bit closer to the phone, I need to get a little bit of a better signal from you there. Okay, I'll do. Much better. Thank you very okay. much. Okay, great. So, uh, first of all, thanks for doing the show. As I said, we talked five months ago or so, and five months in your business is a long time. So maybe you could just sort of give us a general, uh, maybe a general overview for the people who didn't hear the first program, and then we can talk about oh, whatever you want, what's going on in your world. Yeah, I think one of the things, one of the things that you said, you know, that really resonates for me is, you know, it's, it's a strange world. It's an unknown world. It's a cutting edge world. But, but, you know, mostly it's a world that, that, People don't know anything about, and you know I appreciate you know as I was listening to your show that you're putting the word out and telling people watch the internet for this story. 
watch the internet for that story. And that's the problem with nanobiotechnology is how do you tell people to watch the internet for nanobiotechnology? <laughs> it's, it's so hard to define and so hard to explain that it, it makes it very difficult to transmit to people any sense of urgency. So what I do mostly, now by the way, let me say right off the bat, as I always do, that I'm speaking now as a private citizen. That's right. Not as a representative of any university or any organization. And, you know, I think I would, I expect to lose my card as a bioengineer at some point, but, you know, that's the way it goes. <laughs> and the challenge always is, how do you explain what nanotech is to people? and keep them interested without making them feel like they're in that chemistry class that you know, they always wanted to escape from. Right. So the way I like to start off is is to, to tell people what nanotechnology is really, is the ability to build with molecules. So homo sapiens, I used to say man, but that's we have to include women, and there are many women nanotechnologists. Hmm. But let's just say Homo sapiens is defined as the toolmaker. Right. So what happens when the toolmaker learns how to build molecule by molecule? What happens when the toolmaker learns how to build with tools that will manipulate individual molecules? Well, then you can build machines the size of a cell because that's what cells are. They are micro-machines made up of trillions, literally, of individual molecules. Mm -hmm. So who is the original molecular tool maker? Evolution mm -hmm. was the original molecular tool maker. Okay? So when Homo sapiens can build with tools, then we've essentially broken into evolution's toolbox. And now we're in there with evolution, and we intend to do the same things that evolution took three billion years to do. But of course, being humans and being less patient, actually I'm really not in a position to comment on the patience of evolution one way or the other, but you know, being humans, you know, we go as fast as we can. And so as a result, we're building this stuff, but we don't really know what the stuff is that we're building. Now, when you build molecules, when you start hooking DNA up to silicon transistors, and when you start hooking proteins up to gold nanowires, what is it exactly that you've got? And the answer, that was a rhetorical question, the answer is nobody knows exactly what you've got. Now, that's perfectly fine. You know, no one knew what Teflon was until someone synthesized it, and no one knew how to use cell phones until they were made. And so, as you just, you know, that article you just read from is perfectly correct. There's always a cost-benefit analysis that goes with any emerging technology. Mm -hmm. And I'm certainly not anti-technology. But my point would be, how do you tell people to watch a field that is so broad 
that it literally spans everything from quantum mechanics to chemotherapy. Right. You know, how do you keep an eye on a field like that? And one that's changing so quickly that you have to watch the journals every day, basically, if you want to keep up. Yeah, precisely. Right? So I'm just going to start off. I, I recently wrote a grant to a foundation, and I started it off with two quotes, right? Mm-hmm. And one is by Oppenheimer, who certainly oh. knows something about transitional technologies. Yeah, yeah. And I haven't got the the thing in front of me, but Oppenheimer says something to the effect that, you know, it's it's a necessary truth. We have to understand that the deep things in science are not found because they're useful. The deep things in science are found because it was possible to find them. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. So there's a, that's Oppenheimer telling us what we can learn about nature. Mm-hmm. Then I follow that quote with a quote from an editor from a major publisher. And the quote says essentially, you know, nanotechnology is one of those fields that no matter how exciting it gets in real life, it's just never going to make a popular book. You know, that to me the juxtaposition of those those two things just sort of says it all. You know, on the one hand, nanotechnology is going to change everything but but we can't get the public really interested enough in it to even write a book about it that people will buy. Amazing. All right, well, uh, you have a tagline that uh, you use in some of your private work, and, it, and you, you talk about the race to break the carbon barrier is on. It's on. All right, so uh, let's explain what the carbon barrier is. Yeah, it's on. <laughs> okay, so yeah, what I'd really like to do, you know, if, if people do, people ever call in with questions to your show. Sure, and uh, and we have some people in the chat room that are posting questions already. That, yeah, uh, I mean, you know, I think my goal really, you know, I wouldn't say I'm a cutting edge researcher in nanobio, although I've done some interesting things. One of the things that I think is, is very interesting is if you go to any of these sites, and I'll give you a few before the show is over, and if I don't remember, please remind me, is that there's, there are really very few biologists doing this research, and there are even fewer ecologists involved in this. Hmm. So most biological engineers look at cells and DNA and the components of living systems as engineering components, things to be taken apart and put back together again in ways that we have never seen before. Is can I just ask you a question that sure. just sort of strikes me about? Is there any? In other words, it's completely regarded as as machinery. Is there any? Is there any concern whatsoever for, for lack of a better word, for spirit? Well, for lack of a better word, no. <laughs> there's, there's, is, I can't, or at least I cannot identify anything like that. And I know that I'm sure that's, that's a concern to some of your readers. But you know, I don't even have to go into it that deep. I'm more concerned about the idea that, for example, there's no functional. You can't even figure out the difference between synthetic biology and artificial life. Those are two try different to get things. definitions for these terms, right. and, and 
you can't even find out what those things are. Well, you know, the, the, the weird thing is about language is that even, you know, if you, took, uh, if you took 40 of my listeners and asked them all to uh, describe the orthodox uh, uh, description of an atom, it would be a farce, you know. I mean, nobody could, could probably come close to, you know, the, the orthodox, uh, orthodox description of what an atom is. And this is one of the fundamental things that we're all supposed to be, you know, made of and understand. So that then when you get out on the fringes, like you're talking about, well, then it really gets muddy, you know. It's, it's extremely difficult. Now, let me give you an example. You can go to the, and, and I'm not picking on Berkeley, I love Berkeley, but you can go to their Synthetic Biology Center at their website, mm -hmm. and this is a quote right off their webpage. The defining goal of SINBERG, which is the Synthetic Biology Center at Berkeley, is to make biology into an engineering discipline, period. Mm -hmm. end, of, end of statement. Okay. This is their mission statement, basically. Right, yeah, and the defining goal—the defining goal—is to make biology into an engineering discipline. Period. End of statement. Now, I don't know about you, but what that means to me is that the goal is to just be able to take the machine apart—the machine being a living cell—and put it back together any way we want to. And, of course, we're all good guys and we're all good girls, and what we want to put it back together to do is to eat pollution and make alternative fuels and, you know, do things to, you know, cure cancer and so on. And almost everybody working in these fields is in these fields for those reasons. These are good people. But since there seems to be no overarching regulatory system, mm -hmm the tools that they develop, you know, are going to become generally available. And, you know, that's what worries me, and that's what I write about. I'll do one more quote, and this is from a paper that was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, one of the most prestigious of all scientific publications. And these people say without any sense of irony, irony is missing, <laughs> I'm kind of, I'm kind of sorry that uh, you know irony and humor seems to be missing from synthetic biology. But maybe I can inject some. It, these and, and inject a few genes, you know, along with that. I'm working on my stand-up routine. Uh, this is another straight-up well. quote. Quote: The implementation of a silicon to neuron, neuron to silicon circuit, constitutes a proof of principle for the development of neuroelectronic systems. So basically, these people are saying without any sense of irony whatsoever that, hey, check us out. We've just proved that we can wire up individual neurons directly into integrated circuits. Isn't that cool? Yeah. And the answer is, well, yeah, it's cool, but is there anything else going on, or are we just really cool nanopioengineers? Mm. Well, that that's so. Anyway, that that that's the carbon barrier right there. You know, when we start hooking up, you know, to get back, you thought I'd forgotten. No, no, I, no, I didn't. When, when we get back, I know to, you, I've already when, talked to you once. Yeah, you know, when we hook up silicon to neuron circuits, you know, it's hard to say. You know, where does the living material end mm. and the non-living material begin? You know. 
where exactly do you draw that line? We all want to believe that there is, even at the molecular level, we'll be able to go in and say, okay, here's where the living stuff stops and the non-living stuff starts. But in point of fact, if we can build molecular-scale devices and they are carried along with us and they impart a selective advantage to us, then they will be incorporated into our evolutionary scheme. Mm. And if we're going to start carrying these molecular devices with us, and it's not really a big step from there to say, well, we're going to start passing them along to our offspring or putting them in as soon as our offspring are born. born you know, if, we put, if you put something into a baby as soon as that baby is born, and the next generation does it and the next generation does it, then that implantation technology is a form of reproduction. It may not be sexual reproduction, mm -hmm. but there's all kinds of reproduction besides sexual reproduction. And so, you know, the carbon barrier, that place where living materials end and non-living materials begin, is falling, it's crumbling, it's disappearing. But there is no worldwide effort to define and regulate nanobiotechnology that is anything like the scale of the worldwide effort to build these types of devices. So this is, this is what I write about. This is what I think about. I'm saying, okay, all this stuff is incredibly cool. All this stuff is really great. But, you know, given its power and its potential to be world-changing, shouldn't there be an equally large effort to regulate it? And, it, and understand it. And to, you know, well, you know, people who build these things think that they understand it. So, you know, once again, the ontology of it, I'm not quite sure how we define our terms. But if, by definition, some, a technology is going to change every aspect of human endeavor, you would think that there would be a the coevolution of some type of regulatory system or oversight system, like there was with recombinant DNA. I mean, people saw that, and they said, whoa. I mean, they literally said, whoa. You know, we better, like, get together before we freak the world out. <laughs> so, you know, they, meetings were held, the, the famous Asilomar meeting and others, and guidelines were brought forward. But the thing about that community was the molecular biology community was a very small community. And everyone pretty much talked the same language. So it was pretty easy for, you know, 100 or 200 folks to get together and say, okay, we can pretty much cover the waterfront. You know, let's talk about what's possible. Hmm. Whereas nanotech and nanobiotech span so many fields. Like every field, basically. Yeah, that it's almost, it, you know, how are you going to organize, how are you going to organize this meeting? Who's going to attend? Hmm. And, you know, so the only thing I can think of to do is continue to write these articles and say, "Look, wake up! You know, I'm not, I'm not against this stuff. I do this stuff. Right. It's very cool stuff. But if we're as cool as we think we are, or cool in the sense that we have world-changing technology in our hands, we better, you know, get our act together and show the world that we're as concerned with the impact of this technology." Mm -hmm as we are with being able to actually do this stuff. Yeah, it's sort of like uh, when you can do anything, just what do you do? Yeah. 
And, you know, what do you do? I mean, I'll send you to some websites. I mean, for example, people are working on the minimum number of genes you need to have a cell. Like, how many genes can I take out of a bacterial cell and still have it replicate the basic self-replicating life form? Mm -hmm. You know, now, does that have implications beyond basic science? Of course it does. You know, does it have, are there implications to hooking up a neuron to an, directly to a micro-integrated circuit? Of course there is. Mm -hmm. And the question is, you know, who's thinking about that stuff? I can't, if I could find some people who are giving this serious consideration, I would feel better. But, you know, honestly, it's very difficult to find anyone who's giving it serious consideration. Let me mention, uh, Dr. Goldstein, the series of articles that, that have been published and have been running over at Salon.com for, for quite a while now. Um, they're linked up over at my site, but if you go to Salon.com and just do a, uh, a search for biotechnology or Dr. Alan Goldstein or the word nanobot, things like that, you'll be able to find this uh, remarkable series of articles. What is it? Are there three or four pieces that are over there right now? Altogether, no, I think there's about seven. Is it that and many? One thing, there's, there's, there's one article that's called Everything You Wanted to Know About Nanotechnology But Were Too Afraid of Quantum Spookiness. <laughs> <laughs> and so that is sort of like a nanotech primer. So if people are out there thinking, whoa, you know, this sounds important, but I just don't get it, well, you know, try checking out that article. And then if you still don't get it, send me an email. Yeah, and uh, if uh, if you have any ingenuity it's, uh, whatsoever, you'll be able to track down Dr. Goldstein. He's not uh, hard to find out there. Well, I'll, I'll you know, just if they email you, you can just pass it right along. Yeah, what is that? Biomimetics at Hotmail? B-I-O-M-I-M-E-T-I-C-S at Hotmail. All right, biomimetics at Hotmail.com. And like I said, from my site, you can link right over to some information from Dr. Goldstein anyway, and real easy to get a hold of him, and he'll be glad, obviously, to discuss the stuff with you. Well, you know, I love to talk to people about this. All right, well, look, after after this break that we're going to have in a few minutes here, we'll open the phone and see if anybody wants to give us a call, all right? Okay. Um, here's, here's one in the meantime from from a, uh, a gentleman on the web. He says, um, in the near future, will mankind be able to alter its brain chemistry through nanotech so, huma so humanity might be able to speak in a language other than spoken language? In other words, a language that is visible, that can be heard and seen in 3D space. The short answer is yes. So really, anything's possible on the good side and the bad side. Again, it's one of these things that really use your imagination is what this comes down to. Well, you know that that question. I mean, I thought we're, if you're going to a break, I'll wait until afterwards. But no, we got about five minutes. We can talk about it. Okay, this is this is it's a good question because it it shows you the span of nanobio. For example. There are people out there who are doing high-resolution mapping of brain activity using things like magnetic resonance imaging. Mm -hmm. So after a while, we may know which neurons or which cluster of neurons are involved in certain types of emotions or certain types of ideas. And then if you can build these neuroelectronic splices, like the quote I just gave you about silicon 
to neuron, neuron to silicon interfaces, then it becomes possible for your thoughts to go out of your head, or at least certain types of thoughts, and become visualized in any type of electronic device or to be transmitted. So in, in, a, in a certain way, you, you can end up with functional telepathy. But it works both ways, right? Suppose we find through high-resolution mapping of brain activity certain areas of the brain that become highly active when you feel unpatriotic or that become highly active you know, if you decide you want to use, like, an unauthorized substance of some kind, mm. well, you know, maybe we can splice that out of you. And also, if we can put in splices for you to send signals out, of course we can send signals in. So, but the, look, look at the fields that are involved there. You're talking about cognition. You're talking about medical research do high-resolution mapping of brain activity. Mm -hmm. You're talking about surgical implantation. You're talking about nano and microfabrication of transistors. So you've, you've got material scientists. You've got cognitive scientists. You've got brain surgeons. You've got hospitals. You've got, you know, IBM style, not IBM per se, but you know, information technology, cutting-edge, micro and nano circuit design systems. I mean, how are you going to get, how are you going to keep an eye on all these fields? You know, how are you going to, you know, integrate all this information and say, okay, let's get all these people together and have them come up with a set of guidelines with respect to what they can do and what they shouldn't be allowed to do. Right. It's just, it, it spans too many fields. You know, but we can't give up. Right, right. It's just a matter of trying to, like you say, just telling people as much as we can about what's going on. I mean, the stuff that you see. What do you think is the, is the uh, where's the primary push, or is there one? Like you say, it's just everywhere. Well, the, who's funding it all? Is it primary? Is, prim is it being funded by the military primarily? I guess. Well, the military is certainly doing its share of funding. Everyone is on the nanotech bandwagon, and the reason why is it's is it's going to change. For example. You know, if we could nanoscale integrated circuits, we could push the number of transistors on an integrated circuit board up by at least an order of magnitude. Mm -hmm. So you know, the, the computer companies are interested in nanotechnology. If we could, if we could nanoscale our ability to grow cells, if we could, if we could cut out all the excess stuff, and just grow stripped-down cells that only made the stuff we wanted them to make, that would change how pharmaceuticals are produced. It would change, the, change how beer is produced. So, you know, fermentation microbiologists are interested. Biopharmas are interested. In other words, there's, there's a component there for everybody. Mm -hmm. And so everybody is interested. Uh, one place to go is www.nano.gov, which is the homepage for the National Nanotechnology Initiative. You know, we are, we are funding a lot of this research, we being the American taxpayers. And, of course, the goals of most of the things we are funding are wonderful goals. 
but all these technologies are multiple-use technologies. Right, right. Everything cuts both ways. And you know what I would what I would recommend is when you go to this site, look at the re- look at the part that supposedly talks about responsible development. There is a component of the National Nanotechnology Initiative, for example, that is supposedly about responsible development of nanotechnology. And I would just say, you know, citizens who are interested, go there and look. See if you think that these issues are being dealt with with any kind of urgency. You know, people are worried about sort of routine toxicology, like, oh, no, you know, will carbon nanotubes turn out to be the next, the next asbestos or something like that? I mean, things they can, they can sort of wrap their minds around, chemical toxicology, or will they give me cancer or something like that? But hardly anyone is focused on things that are really not that far down the road. You remember that the first, the first recombinant bacteria was released into the environment only 15 years after the first recombinant DNA molecule was made. Was yeah, the first recombinant DNA molecule, I think, was made in 1972. And as I recall, in 1987, the first recombinant bacteria were released into the environment. What does that mean exactly, recombinant bacteria released into the environment? Well, it was the famous ice nucleating uh, strawberry test. That was actually at that test. And I write a little bit about it in one of the Salon articles. And what did they do? And so this company went out and sprayed a field with bacteria that had been genetically engineered, mm-hmm. supposedly to stop these strawberries from freezing. And, you know, it was, if, if you look at the article, you'll see that there are a number of reasons why, but the point I'm trying to make is it wasn't even a generation, right. you know, between the creation of the first recombinant DNA molecule and the release into the environment of an organism containing recombinant DNA. So many of these things we're talking about are not a hundred years in the future. You know, hmm. they may not even be fifty years in the future. Right. They may be fifteen years in the future. And that's why I say I don't get any sense of urgency with respect to the synthetic biology community, with respect to the nanobiotechnology community. It's more like, you know, the, the standard, gosh, wow, isn't this cool? And that part is real. It is cool. Mm-hmm. But we should also be concerned about the other side of it, the ethical side. All right, look, we'll uh, continue in just a few minutes, okay? Sure. All right, everybody, uh, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. My guest is Dr. Alan Goldstein. We're talking about nanobiotechnology and the implications of uh, this amazing new field, emerging field, Evolving field uh, of science and uh, and 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 uh, the applications just uh, are all over the board. So anyway, we'll be we'll be back in just a few minutes with Dr. Goldstein. All right, uh, on the web, let's see. Let's give out a couple websites. You can check out that one that uh, Alan just mentioned, uh, mentioned www.nano.gov. And if you go to my site at mikehagan.com, you'll find a bunch of stuff linked uh, that's relevant to this conversation, okay? All right, we'll play a song here from Holy Frog. This is called Homo Erectus. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Dr. Alan Goldstein. It's Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit, KOPN, Columbia, 89.5 FM.
right, there you have it. That's another one from Tobias and the gang from Holy Frog. That one's called Homo Erectus. All right, this is Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. On the line with me, Dr. Alan Goldstein, and we're welcoming your phone calls tonight. I've got some questions that have come up uh, on the web over the last uh, few minutes while we've been taking a break here. So uh, if you'd like to call, though, give us a call at uh, area code 573-443-8255. If you've got a question for the good doctor, he'd be glad to address it, I'm sure. And one more time, that number is 573-443-8255. All right, Dr. Goldstein, you still here with us? You bet. All righty, good. Uh, let's see. In the meantime, uh, can I ask you one that came uh, off the web here? Sure. All right. Uh, a, uh, I'm not sure if it's a man or a woman, but they have a question about health applications. Uh, the possibilities of these technologies being used for treatment or cure for disease like cancer, heart disease, etc., and what is a reasonable time frame for seeing the effective implementation of such treatments? That's a wonderful question, and in fact, that's exactly where I was going to go next. Because people, you know, need concrete examples like, what does this mean for me? Right. Okay. Yeah, so, I think health is one that a lot of people say, well, how can this really help? Because a lot of people are suffering from something or other, you know? Absolutely. And, you know, once again, the you know, people who work in these fields, that's, that's what they're thinking, too. That's why everyone is in such a rush. Got to go, got to go, got to go. Got to clone that gene. Got to make that gizmo because people are dying. Mm. You know, you know, people are in pain. People are losing their vision. So this is, this is, it's not because people, you know, are bad necessarily or that they're, they don't think about ethics, but the immediacy of many of these applications drives people at this incredible speed. Now, the short answer is if you go to NIH's website, and this is in my article on nanomedicine that is in Salon, uh, they'll give you time frames like 15 or 20 years. So once again, not you know, a long time for someone who is suffering now, but not a long time in terms of the history of technology development. Now, let me give you an example straight out of the healthcare industry. What if everyone, carried around their entire genetic code in their pocket, right? You had a card, and you handed over your card, and instead of your blood type, it had your entire 4 billion base pair gene sequence on it. You know, is that going to change the healthcare industry? Is, is that going to have an impact on the healthcare industry? You know, of course, that's a rhetorical question, but you know, the point I make in the article on nanomedicine is that there's already a challenge out there by Craig Venter for the, for, you know, he's offering a prize for the first company or a person that can sequence a whole genome for a thousand bucks. But the truth is that, that I would bet green money that, you know, within 10 years, we're going to be able to sequence a whole genome for a hundred bucks or 50 bucks or 10 bucks. What is, is is the nature of doing that? Is it purely something like processor speed? Well, it's first of all, once again in this article, there's it's it's about nanotechnology. If you can just if you could pull a single strand of DNA through a through a hole that's about the size of a DNA molecule, right? So it's about ten nanometers across, right? You just pull. So like you've got this piece of string, only instead of string, it's your chromosome. 
and you just pull it through this hole and just count off the bases they go through. Oh, that's an A, pop. You know, it's like a string of Bs. Oh, that's a G. Oh, that's a C. And you just you just pull that string through, and then you pull the next chromosome through, and you're literally doing it one molecule at a time. This gets back to the idea of what is nanotechnology. Mm-hmm. It's Building the ability to build at the molecular level. So if I can build a machine that will just take your chromosomes and zip them through this little counter that's the same size, I can just count right your count your base sequence right off. So in this article, I, I I provide a link to a person at Cornell who's who has made a DNA sequencer that will operate with a volume of one zeptoliter. Now, one zeptoliter, if I recall, and don't hold me, this is ten to the minus twenty-one liter. So it's a very Which small. Means take, if a liter is about a gallon, right? Right. You take a gallon and you divide it into a billion little parts, and then you take each one of those little parts and you divide that into another billion parts. <laughs> and wait, but then you take that and you divide that into another thousand parts. So, you know, he's claiming that he can, so basically on something the size of a postage stamp, if this thing works the way he wants it to work, He's going to be able to do like hundreds of genomes in just a few minutes. My gosh. So this is what, this is another good example. Now, in order to do that, you have to have material science. You have to have all kinds of laser optics. You know, so it's, it's, once again, it spans so many fields. But the bottom line is, if that happens, it's going to be as easy for someone to get your genotype as it is to get your blood sugar. But the difference is, Lots of people have your blood sugar, right? right? But no one else has your genome. So number one, medical privacy goes right out the window. You know, no one's prepared to keep encrypted everybody's four billion base pair genome. Right. And even assuming we had the computer power to do it, there's going to be all kinds of side doors, you know, connecting one with the other, you know. So if because my genome is unique, my proteins are unique. Because my proteins are unique, my carbohydrates are unique. So someone can track me down through a side door. I might give somebody one of my carbohydrate molecules, but if that information gets out, they can backtrack me to my genetic code. So, you know, for example, there's a project going on right now to try to link what are called SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms, right? So they're going to sequence the genomes of like hundreds and then thousands and then tens of thousands of people and correlate single base changes with different diseases and disorders or Mm -hmm. the probability that you will develop a particular disease or disorder. Now, on the one hand, you say, great. You know, people will know whether I'm going to get this or whether I'm going to get that. But on the other hand, whoa, what about the insurance companies? What about medical coverage? What about your right to know? Do you even want to know right. that you have ten times the probability of, de- of developing a particular type of arthritis? And is the insurance company now going to say, well, you know, because you have these three single nucleotide 
changes in this particular gene, you've got a 20 times greater probability of developing this particular disease. So we're not going to cover you, or we're not going to cover you for that disease. Or we'll only pay 3% of the cost of treating that disease for you. I mean, this opens up so many challenges to our healthcare system that it's just mind-boggling. It's like a tsunami. Someone got on my case for using the word tsunami. It's a, it's a, it's a tsunami heading towards the healthcare industry. And like I said, you know, I talk about like no sense of irony. Like, dude, if that's really all you've got to worry about, them not using tsunami the right way, then you know, what can I, what can I do? But you know, yeah. when we're not ready for this, and we're not talking about 50 years from now or 100 years from now. So on the one hand, if you go to some of these major biopharma's websites. They'll talk about genomic medicine and targeted medicine and personalized medicine and how great it's going to be when they can read your genome and know exactly, you know, how to dose you and so on and so forth. But there's a, there's a, so on and so forth. But there's a complete flip side to that, which is, you know, what are we going to do with this deluge of information? How are we going to reconfigure our healthcare delivery system to deal with the fact that it's going to be just as easy to run your genome as it is right now to run your blood sugar. And, you know, I really don't see, you know, the same type of effort going into thinking these issues through as I see going into developing these zeptoliter nanobiotechnology-based DNA sequencers. And that's the dichotomy that really worries me. Amazing. Here's another related question. Uh, they say there are lots of people on planet Earth. Who gets access? Yeah, absolutely. What you know, I don't pull any punches on that. You know, in, in the first article I ever wrote on nanobio, I say we are in the act of speciating. You know, we are moving on, and what's going to happen is there's going to be the people who have access to this technology, and after a while, they won't be people anymore. See, this is you know. Laurie Anderson has this great line in one of her albums. I don't know if she invented it or if she borrowed it from someone else. And people who are listening, now you have my email. If anyone knows, email me and tell me. But the song starts out and says, Paradise is exactly like where you are right now, only much, much better. <laughs> and, you know, but she says it with the appropriate irony. But nanobiotechnologists don't seem to have a well-developed sense of irony. And the idea is, you know, when we have all this stuff in us, when we have all these new capabilities, like we're still going to be humans. You know, people don't get the fact that when we have all this stuff in us and all these new capabilities, we're not going to be us anymore. Hmm. We're not going to be homo sapiens anymore. We're going to be something else. We're not going to want to, you know, I went to a play the other night and, and this is not a negative thing at all because I applaud anyone who tries to convey science to the general public. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in, in one of the, pl the plays are about stem cells. And in one of the plays, the stem cells are sitting around getting drunk, talking about their problems. You know, and it's like the X-Files, right? You know? <laughs> You know, where the aliens are just like us, only they have green blood. I mean, right. it's just like it's a Hollywood trip. You, know, yeah. you know, aliens are just like us, only their noses look different, right. their eyes or their blood is 
is acid or whatever. But see, that's you know, that's the thing. It's so hard to get across. Right, right. When you have all these capabilities, you know, it's got to change your consciousness as well. And so the short answer, in my opinion, is what we're witnessing is speciation. <laughs> and you know, the idea that we're all going to get this technology and we're all going to move forward together into the nano-bio age, you know, that might happen, but unless someone does something to change the way the world is going now, it ain't going to be like that. Uh, just uh, as a related question from me, do you think, and I mean, I know this is out there and you can decline if you want, but... Oh, by the way, I don't mean to be yelling, but you told me I wasn't coming No, through, you sound... So I hope I sound like a normal... You're sounding perfect. I hope I, d- I hope I don't sound any crazier than Nishi, although I've <laughs> never heard any recordings of Nishi. <laughs> Yeah, no, you, you're you're uh, you're loud and clear, and it's gonna it's it's it'll be a great recording too. And I like to get uh, the levels up nice and high when when we put these things up on the web, so other people can hear it well when they download it. Okay, so, just checking. So go ahead. No, you're great. Uh, okay, so um, well, as as a related question to that, if in, in your opinion, and, and like I say, you can decline if you if, if you'd like to. Do you think that if this stuff were somehow focused, if we somehow Got control of our the Promethean side of, of of humanity. If we focus this stuff in a in beneficial direction, that that the Earth could sustain, you know, the people, the populations that exist on it now. Or do you think we're just completely over the top already? And that population. I read a quote from uh, from Kissinger, Henry Kissinger, a guy who I'm not a big fan of, quite frankly, uh, either. But he's you know he's said something about uh, how Population control was, uh, you know, one of the biggest uh, problems and things. And I don't know. Do you think that there's something like that going on? Well, it's when when did Kissinger say that? You remember let's, the date of that? Well, I don't know. Let's see. Uh, let's see. Let's see. Because well, I... first of all, I just would say parenthetically that it seems to me that population control has sort of fallen off the world's agenda. Hmm. This is not directly related to nanobio, but when you think about it, you know, when I was growing up, and I'm not a big fan of Kissinger's either being a child of the 60s, right. but when you think about it, you know, population control used to be like on the United Nations and everybody's list of things we really have to take care of. And recently you don't hear much about it. And I'm just I'm wondering, you know, if that is not related in some way to to the rise of fundamentalist religious thinking. Wow, check it out. Yeah, this is it's actually from um, a national security memo dated April 24th, 1974. It's titled Implications of Worldwide Popula- Population Growth for US Security and Overseas Interests. And Kissinger says here, Dr. Dr. Henry Kissinger proposed in his memorandum to the NSC that depopulation should be the highest priority of US foreign policy toward the third world. He quoted reasons of national security and because the U.S. economy will require large and increasing amounts of minerals from abroad, especially from less developed countries. Oh, my God, what a monster. Listen to this. (laughs) Wherever a lessening of population can increase the prospects for such stability, population policy becomes relevant to resources, supplies, and the economic interests of the United States. I mean, it's absolutely sickening. And it goes on with guys like Alexander Haig and Cyrus Vance and all these clowns from the... who, who are still, you know... Uh, for whatever reasons, 
you know, people actually respect them for some reason now. But uh, any, a, anyway, it seems like a lot of that stuff becomes obsoleted by the stuff that we're talking about. No, that's correct. And in point of fact, technology used properly could provide many of the benefits that you're talking about. And in point of fact, we do have the resources, mm. but they're not equally distributed, which is, or even vaguely equally distributed, which gets back to the idea of speciation. Mm. And what I thought you, if we don't change the way things are going now, I mean, it's it's almost like we've reached the point in that Oliver Stone movie where, where you know, Michael Douglas is giving the greatest good speech. You know, and it's just it's just embarrassing. I mean, I think it was probably okay if when you became an elected official, if you wanted to help your friends get rich. But now we're talking about, you know, people who want to help their billionaire friends get even richer. And, you know, this is not a particularly nano-related subject, but, you know, it definitely strikes me that that we've come to accept the fact that resources should be allocated based on this warped pseudo-capitalistic idea that if you've got it, you deserve to have it. And you deserve to have as much as you can get. And, you know, if that's true, that'll certainly be true with nano-bio as well. Who gets the implants? You know, who gets the stents? You know, for example, you know, someone who gets a cardiac stent, you know, doesn't have a heart attack. And they get to go on, and if they want to, continue to reproduce, to have more children. Just a very simple example of speciation based on access to technology. Whereas someone who doesn't get the stent, you know, they have the heart attack, and they die, and they don't have the opportunity to continue to propagate, you know, to spread their seed and become a pater familias, as, uh, as he says, you know, brother art out there. You know. <laughs> so, you know, and, and you just take that and multiply, just keep adding zeros to it, orders of magnitude in terms of what nanobio is going to enable certain people to do, and you see a tremendous selection pressure. <laughs> you know, conversely, if you were to take these same resources and aim them at, for example, purifying water, for example, harnessing sunlight and converting it into electrical energy, then you've got a whole different picture, absolutely. But who sets the priorities? Once again, uh, take a look at some of these websites and see what these folks are working on and see who's funding them. You know, a lot of this stuff is going on in the private sector, but a lot of it is public domain so that people who are interested can check it out. I sent, you know, I sent you a link to the uh this international student competition. Yeah, the one in uh, California. And so it it's being sponsored by it's called iGem, so it's the International Genetically Engineered Machine Competition. Okay. Huh. And so you know, if you go to this this page, and you can you can put the website. Is this the, the the synthetic biology conference, the right. second international conference on synthetic biology? Right. Then you can get there from there, or I'll you know I'll I'll send you the link directly to this. Okay. And so it's an international competition. I guess they're going to judge it at the third synthetic biology conference, and we'll get into that in a second. But you know, here's all these happy students, and you know they're excited, and they should be. You know, 
I've had lots of excited students in my lab. Although, once again, I must emphasize that I'm speaking as an individual now and not for any institution. Mm -hmm. But the example I sent you was of a student project. Here's another specific example. A student project where they're, they're going to use synthetic biology to teach bacteria to talk to each other via the specificity of their genetic codes. So in that example, these students are, are just thinking about basic knowledge, but that gives you the opportunity to build a binary biological weapon. You know, we've all seen, like, Bruce Willis movies and so forth, where, you know, you've got the, the tube of red stuff and the tube of green stuff, and it only becomes explosive when you mix the two together, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing they're working on could could be used in the same way so that you have two different, say, bacteria or two different viruses that are completely harmless. And one's got the key that unlocks the other one. Mm. But, you know, these kids aren't thinking about that. They're not thinking about new ways to build bioweapons, but someone is. Right, right. You know, that's not going to slip by unnoticed, right? Yeah, I'm actually looking at the, uh, I clicked on the, the link that says, what is synthetic biology? And they have a pretty straightforward statement. It's it's very similar to the uh, the Berkeley statement that you made earlier. They, sure. they simply say, synthetic biology is the development of well-characterized biological components that can be easily assembled into larger functioning devices to accomplish many particular right. goals. Right, stop right there. That's it. Functioning devices. Right, Do you Engineer. feel like a functioning device tonight? <laughs> I know I do. Right, you know, we're talking about living cells right. assembled for specific purposes. Well, what are those purposes? Mm -hmm. If you read the grants, it's to cure cancer. It's to eat. You know, it's to reduce the CO2 in the atmosphere. It's to biodegrade waste materials. All the good stuff and the right stuff from our perspective. But every one of these technologies can be turned inside out. Right. Well, no doubt about it. And we've got. Um well, I tell you what, we've got a couple minutes before the top of the hour. Let me let me ask you one more uh, because there's a, uh, a person asked clearly: Could such technology be used as a weapon for individual targeting? Oh, that's such a great question. Yeah, that you know, it's one what of my. And they classes. can take out one person because of their specific genome. Or yeah, whatever. one person or one race. Uh huh. You know, or one people from one region. Absolutely. So these, these bioweapons, right, first they get in and reach your genome, and like if you're more than 20, I mean, it's, it's even, it, it'll even be more finely tuned than that. If your genome is like more than 25% Afghani, just for example, mm -hmm. then it, it will self-activate. And if it's not, it won't. Absolutely, we're going to be able to create bioweapons that go in and check your genes out first, you know, and if you've got the right genes, you get to live. And if you get the wrong genes, you die. But wouldn't everyone be making these things? I mean, my gosh. I mean, I mean, if the, I mean, you figure... Well, everyone won't be making all these things. No. But some of, you know, some of these technologies, see, that's the, that's the other side of it. You know, I, I, read, an, I read an editorial in our local paper in the, in the Kron, you know, about a year ago, and, and they were talking about, well... What if we had a universal cure for cancer, but it cost ten trillion dollars? Should would would, be, would we be ethically obligated to invest in it? And you know, my answer was 
you don't get it. You know, the technology is going to keep getting cheaper and cheaper. You know, 20 years from now, it's not going to cost $10 trillion. It's probably going to cost $1,000. Right. I mean, think about your cell phone. <laughs> if in 1965 you had said to some company, I need a device that I can carry in my pocket that will allow me to communicate with anybody in the world, either through voice or visual or data, they would have said, well, that's going to cost you $10 trillion. We can't do that. But now they're giving this stuff away. So, you know, yeah, a lot of this technology is going to become incredibly cheap. Amazing. And so some people will be able to do some of these things. Uh, but once again, it will be a race. So, you know, the people, you know, when you talk about responsible development of nanotechnology to certain people in the government, Mostly what they think that means is we can't lose the nanotechnology race. You know, it would be eerie. It's like, it, it's like in Dr. Strange's love with the mine shaft. Gap. Wow, great, great, you know, great. So, we, yeah. we can't allow a nano cast, right? <laughs> That's responsible development. Right, 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 right. Oh, my gosh. All right, look, uh, let's, let's take a breather here, okay? That's a good, yeah, no mine shaft gap and no nano gap. Oh, my gosh, I love it. All right, everybody, we'll be back uh, in just a, a minute here. My guest is Dr. Alan Goldstein. Amazing stuff, as I expected, uh, from Dr. Goldstein. I've got a whole list of questions here that are rolling up uh, uh, from the Internet. I'm not sure if the phones, uh, sometimes we have uh, some technological issues. So if you guys want to give me a call at the break here and try the other line at uh, 573-874-5676, uh, I'll be glad to... Uh, uh, to um, uh, share your question, all right, if you're having trouble with the 443 number. If not, you can try us uh, after the break at 573-443-8255. That's 573-443-8255 if you want to get on the air and ask Dr. Goldstein a question, all right, assuming that my technology, which is hardly nano in nature, uh, is working correctly. All right, so it's Mike. We'll have another song here from... Uh, from Holy Frog, this one is called Going to the Country. I think that's a good idea. I need to take a break and go to the country after all of this technological uh, conversation. All right, back in just a few minutes. It's Mike on the web, MikeHagan.com, and lots of in uh, information right on my front page there about Dr. Goldstein, his work, and articles uh, that he's written, and things that are associated with all that stuff. Going to the country 
tree Gonna find myself a home Where I ain't got no neighbors And the government leaves me alone I just wanna be a cowboy Get myself a girl Who won't take any shit from me And questions what she In Columbia, it's Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit, and it's uh, just about six or seven minutes after one a.m. now on the third of October, Tuesday morning, and we're talking with Dr. Alan Goldstein about nanobiotechnology and uh, some related topics as well. So, all right, back to Dr. Goldstein. Uh, the phone lines are open: five seven three four four three eight two five five. If you want to join us. 
And uh, if you don't, just keep listening. We've got uh, some great questions coming in over the web here. And Dr. Goldstein, thanks again for sticking around. You're in California uh, as usual, right? Yeah, thoroughly for me, no problem. Okay, no problem, cool. And um, and by the way, uh, hello to your wife as well from uh, uh, from Larry. Uh, I think you know Larry, my webmaster. Yeah. He says well, hello. Hi, Larry. Larry's the man. Yeah, he's doing a great job, and he he really appreciates your work too. So thanks to you and and to Kate, uh, uh, your wonderful wife, Kate Braverman, who's an yeah, author and a great writer, Kate Braverman. All right, cool. Um, let's see here, lots of stuff, but uh, here's one right here. I read your article, I Nanobot. What is an animat? Okay. You know, that's a, well, I said that's a good question to all the questions, but they are good questions. <laughs> let me, let me back it up one step by saying this. There are very few bona fide biologists and even fewer bona fide ecologists involved in the world of nanobiotechnology. Mm. And as a result, you know, that makes it even more difficult to come up with with a coherent process for regulating nanobio. Now, the short answer is an animat, an anima material, or a living material. And so the question is, how do you know when you have crossed the line and broken the carbon barrier? How do you know when you now have a living material that is not of natural origin? And everything that we know of of natural origin is carbon-based. Yeah. Can you clarify that a little bit for people who aren't clear sure, on it? Sure, absolutely. And, I'll, and you know, it's in iNanobot, but the bottom line is that, you know, that we are a DNA, you know, first of all, evolution was the original molecular engineer, right? Mm-hmm. We, are, we are a collection of micro-machines. Several, we have, the, the, the human body, if you Google it up, I hate to, you know, Google, <laughs> you can Yahoo it up or do it any way you want to. Yeah, it's weird how but, you know, if you, if you try to do a, if you look for the number of cells in the human body, you'll get anywhere from like 1 trillion to 10 trillion cells. So each one of our cells is a micro-machine. You know, our cells are a micrometer in the micrometer size range. Right. So, you know, we're made up of like trillions of micro-machines. And inside each of those cells, also known as micromachines, are trillions of molecules, enzymes, DNA, RNA, also known as nanomachines. Okay? So evolution was the original molecular engineer. Evolution was the original nanoengineer. Now evolution picked a particular set of molecules to use in its molecular Engineering, DNA, RNA, protein, carbohydrate, and they're all based on the chemistry of carbon. Okay. So we are carbon-based life forms. Like you know, I hate to sound too Spockian, like you know, because as soon as I start talking about no carbon-based kidding, as, as life soon as forms. I start talking about this stuff, I start to get hoarded jokes. Uh, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean that's. That's what we end. Okay, it's time for the horda. <laughs> so, you know, they were the silicon-based life forms. Everyone thought we're just rocks. Right. And, you know, we're the carbon-based life forms. And you can tell we're alive because we drink green whatever it was. Right, right, so, right. You know, the question is how will, you, how will we know when we've crossed the carbon barrier? We need to have some kind of test. Okay. 
And so in that article in iNanobot, I construct what's called the Animat test. And it says simply that if everything that an organism can do is programmed by either DNA or RNA, then it's a biological life form. Because, you know, some, some viruses are RNA-based, and everything else, its genetic code is made of DNA. And even prions, which are proteins, you know, they have to originally be made, they have to be coded for by DNA or RNA. Mm -hmm. So the test is very simple. If this thing, if this organism can go through its whole life cycle only using DNA or RNA, if, or let me put it the other way, if all the instructions, if the complete set of operating instructions can be contained in DNA or RNA, then the organism is biological, right? It's just as simple as that. Now, is it synthetic biological or evolution-based biology? Well, you know, if you build it yourself, it's synthetic. But either way, if all the instructions for you to go through your life cycle are made of DNA and or RNA, then you are a biological organism. Amazing. If not, in other words, if you need something else, like a piece of silicon-based wiring or some other element, then you've gone through the carbon barrier. You're not just a biological organism anymore. You are an animat. Mm -hmm. And, you know, unless we're watching for it, this will happen and we won't even know it. You know, like in SETI, right, you know, you aim all these telescopes at outer space and you look for... Right, listen for signals and right. For, you look for like equations or prime numbers or mm -hmm. whatever. Right, right, but, right. But we, no one's looking inward. Mm -hmm. And the example I give. Yeah, in, what's new? In that article is you know, suppose you're an organism and you get a you get a mutation that lets you operate or grow at a higher temperature. You know, you don't immediately you know say you're up in the high Sierras. Like, you don't immediately jump up and run down to Death Valley. You go, oh, wow, you know, I've got an enzyme that can operate at 120 degrees. I'm going to head on down to Death Valley and take over that ecosystem. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's not the way it works. I mean, if that mutation doesn't do you any harm, you just sort of carry it along. <laughs> and gradually, over time, your population, your offspring, work their way into warmer climates. So the idea is that, you know, these animats are not just going to spring up and, like, suddenly we're going to break the carbon barrier and we're all going to know it. Right, right, right. You know, right. it's going to mm -hmm. operate like evolution, probably, which means that a key breakthrough in crossing that carbon barrier will occur. And if we're not looking for it, we won't even know it happened. Amazing. You know, it'll just slip right by. All right. Well, anyway, the, the oh, animat wow. test is if, if you can go through your whole life cycle, if everything you need is coded for by DNA and or RNA, you are biological. If not, hey, you're an animat. Amazing. All right, well, this is... Uh uh, th this is this is great because these questions uh, these guys are sharp. Listen to this. This is a little bit long, but I think that uh, there's a question about evolution. Okay, um, and this. This, is, this comes in email. He says, Samuel Butler Taylor was an intellectual who in the 19th century was misunderstood as a critic of Darwinism when, when Darwinism was all the rage. 
He was not so much a critic of Darwin as someone who wanted to expand Darwinian ideas into domains other than biology. We have seen descriptions of the evolution, for example, of song, which is an example of evolution working in a non-physical realm. We now talk about evolution of molecular systems. What about technology, as in nanobiobotics? Is evolution happening, and is it speeding up? Yes. The short answer is yes. The short answer is absolutely. And in point of fact, you know, the band that you had on uh, had a song about Homo erectus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, I've actually, you know, we, Kate and I were actually in Africa looking at the footprints. And the original guy was called, or gal, was called Homo habilis. Homo habilis. Mm -hmm. And the first tool maker, right, was on this planet at least two million years before Homo sapiens. So the point there is that, that man is humans, Homo sapiens, men and women, we're not the tool makers. You know, tools were here before us. We co-evolved with our tools, hmm. and that's still going on. The person who wrote that question really gets it. It's not just us making the tools. The tools were here two million years before us. It's us and the tools co-evolving co together. Amazing. Absolutely. Wow, really cool. Okay, uh, along those same lines. So that person gets it, <laughs> you know, at least from my understanding of the question. All right. They need to go out and tell their friends. All right. Very, very interesting. All right. Uh, along the same lines, uh, nanobots are, quote, unquote, alive. Is it possible that a nanobot could change or evolve inside a human system? Absolutely. That's the first law. You know, when I wrote I, Nanobot, I thought, well, you know, if I, if I cop a name from one of Asimov's famous books. From iRobot. You know, iRobot, then... Mm -hmm. Then, you know, maybe I'll get some people's attention. So yeah, and it's I robot, I wrote I nanobot. But the first law of nanobotics is, and I, here's a good example. I was going to call it the first law of nanobiobotics, but I thought, well, that's, people won't even read that. <laughs> you know, so I have to call it the first law of nanobotics. Right. But the point is, the law says something to the effect that it is not possible to design a molecular system that interacts with a biological system and guarantee that information only moves one way. Meaning, if, if they put a nanobot into you, if, you know, if you design, let me put it a different way, if you design a molecular machine specifically to be able to exchange information with a biological machine, what guarantee do you have that it will only do what you programmed it to? You have no guarantee. Mm -hmm. In biology, that's called mutation, right? Right. So you can't, if, by definition, if you're going to put a molecular scale machine into the human body and you program that machine with the chemical information to talk to the molecular machines in the human body. Again, RNA or DNA. Yeah, or proteins or carbohydrates. You have no guarantee that the body is not going to talk back. You know, Bertrand Russell talks about chemical imperialism. You know, that Bertrand essentially Russell, he was we else, are yeah. the product, homo we're the product of carbon imperialism, <laughs> right? You know, 
And it's funny because systems people, people who think at the level of computers and robots and modeling, they really diss chemistry. They think like, you know, there were at one point there were people who thought the DNA molecule was too stupid to be the genetic code because it only had four bases. You know, and these are very intelligent folks. In the same way, you cannot disrespect the power of pure chemistry. If you put a if you put a nanobot in there to cure cancer, it has a protein component or a DNA component so that it can talk to your protein or your DNA. But what if your protein or your DNA decides to talk back? Right. right. Or what if the machine gets slightly damaged. Remember, you know, when you dose somebody with these things, you're not just going to put one in there. You're going to put a billion of them in there. Mm -hmm. And then what if there are nanotherapies for, you know, two diseases or three? You know, then you've got people with, like, populations of nanobiobots. And, you know, what if they start talking to each other? I mean, the nanotech community... And couldn't they end up in the environment, too? I mean, by like yeah, urination the or something end up like anywhere. that. And you know, this this is a no-no. I mean, what yeah. if you could? I mean, if you, even if you get a cut, you know what I mean? And and they, and they can leave through, if, through blood or whatever. I mean, or, it's, it's a complete no-no. You know, we're not supposed to talk about gray goo. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think I don't I, tell I, people what the gray goo scenario is. Well, it's you know a self-replicating nanobot that essentially takes over the world. It covers the world with self-replicating nanobots. It eats everything. Hmm. And you know, we're not supposed to ever talk about gray goo because that sets off nanophobia. <laughs> but you know, the truth is, we were never, we're, we've never been closer. I mean, we're working as hard as we can to build molecular scale machines that can replicate inside the human body. Uh, did Did you ever see the movie Fight Club? Right? You know, it was unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. And he he gives the formula. You know, A plus B. Yeah. Equal C. Well, there's a there's a formula like that in the I Nanobot article. It says, okay, you've got people working on nanobiobots that can use your can use glucose as an energy source, right? Right. And you've got other people working on nanobiobots that can live inside human cells. And you've got other people working on nanobiobots that can self-replicate. So, like A plus B. Plus C, hmm. you know, then you've got a nanobiobot that A can use your own energy, so it runs on your glucose. You know, B it can live in your cells, and C it knows how to replicate. And there are projects like that going on right now. And the fact that there's no one working on A, B, and C simultaneously doesn't mean that that in 10 or 15 years you won't be able to take A plus B plus C and get D. In fact, we've never been closer to building self-replicating nanobiobots. But you can—you'll never get anyone in the government to admit that. Hmm. I'll bet green money on it. Try it. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. People are so afraid. You know that, that. See, because they—they they don't think we can have an intelligent dialogue about nanobiotechnology, and they. Might be right. That's it may not be. Or maybe all we can do is speak in buzzwords. Right, right, and right. so, in that case, their fear is very well justified. That's a question that sort of uh, comes up in my mind with regard to 
the political side of this whole thing. And, I mean, do the Congress people, uh, I mean, not necessarily in our country, but certainly in our country, but all around the world, I mean, do these people even have a grasp of any of this stuff to, before, I mean, they're p- passing legislation or whatever. To me, it seems like uh, legislation or whatever is more political than anything else, but in the meantime, the, the, the work just marches faster and faster forward, and it's almost so like... People, people who are interested should read the review of the National Nanotechnology Initiative. Not the whole thing, but the bottom line. You know, the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology, PCAST, and I'll send you the link. About a year ago, they published a review of America's state of nanotechnology. Uh-huh. And, you know, my, you know, I don't want to pass judgment. I would simply say, take a look at this report. You know, there's a summary section written for George W. Bush, so, you know, it's not... You know, they're not going to pull the equations right up front there. And, you know, if you see anything about worrying about, you know, human performance enhancement or any of these other issues we've talked about tonight, let me know because I can't find it. I mean, it's not out there. And so while there might be some, as I said, there are some general references to responsible development, but does that mean... We shouldn't lose the nanotechnology race to China, mm-hmm. or does it mean that we need to form some kind of transcendent, you know, working group or committee to keep an eye on you know, where these projects are going? It's as am- far as I can tell, amazing. it's the former, but not the latter. Yeah, it's amazing to me. I know there are things like the Center for Responsible Nanotechnology and this sort of thing, and again, it seems to me almost just like, like whistling past the graveyard. I mean, like. Well, if you, if you look at that, though, is it is it a government-affiliated group? Probably not. Probably not. No, no. And, you know, yeah. for, you know I had a dialogue with uh, with this guy who has a, a blog called Soft Machines, right? Uh-huh. And his name is Richard Jones, and I can say that because, you know, it's right here on the Internet. Right. And, and he says, and this is a quote, we had a little dialogue on his blog. First of all, he says his blog gets 30,000 visits got 30,000 visits so far this month. This is about six months ago. This is a quote. We should also stop worrying about gray goo because it is going to be very hard to produce more highly optimized nanoscale organisms than nature has already achieved. Hmm. So he's basically saying, you know, don't worry about synthetic biology because we could never build a virus or a bacteria that deadlier than the stuff that's already out there. Hmm. I mean, and what I say is, whoa, what? are you kidding me? Uh. You know, I mean, what about global warming? What about, you know, like humans can't generate technology that beats nature? Right. I don't think so. <laughs> like, you know, but this this gets back to the whole point that there are very few bona fide ecologists. I mean, I think this guy's actually a physicist by original training. Hmm. Many of the people doing synthetic biology are chemical engineers or mechanical engineers by original training. So they're not trained in ecology. They're not even trained in classical biology. So, you know, why should they worry about that stuff? Hmm. Amazing. All right, look, uh, we're just about the bottom of the hour. Let's take, i got a couple more great questions, but I don't want to, I want to give us plenty of time to get into them. So let's take a break here, okay? Sure. All right, everybody. Wow. Amazing stuff, as uh, always, with Dr. Alan Goldstein. We'll be back in just a few minutes. 
Lots of information on the web about Dr. Goldstein and his work. Just uh, go over to MikeHagan.com, and you can link over to a bunch of stuff. And if you go to Salon.com, you can read any of a number of articles, uh, seven or so, six or seven, eight maybe, uh, that he's done over the last few years, and they are just remarkable. He's a great writer, and uh, uh, obviously someone who really knows what's happening in this particular part of uh, our reality these days, and it is a wild one. So, all right, we'll do it. We'll come back in just a few minutes with Dr. Goldstein, and we'll play another song here in the meantime from Holy Frog. This one is called S'mores. Again, I've got the country thing going here, so I'll go out and start a fire and have some s'mores. It's Mike, you're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. Back in just a few.
All right, everybody, it's Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's about 1.34 a.m. Central Time, uh, now the 3rd of October. And uh, program support for KOPN comes from Colors. Colors is an educational organization made up of local independent businesses, community organizations, and citizen members who would like you to know that entrepreneurship fuels America's economic innovation and prosperity and can help families move out of low-wage jobs into the middle class the ever-shrinking middle class. Uh, information is available at colorsalliance.org. Colors Dollars participants for the upcoming fund drive will include Haas's Market and Rotisserie, La Bonne Vie, and Salon, uh, I'm sorry, La Bonne Vie Salon and Sub Shops. All right, as I said, Mike, Radio Orbit, KOPN. And we've got about uh, another 20 minutes or so with Dr. Alan Goldstein, author of I Nanobot, an amazing piece of... Uh, literary work, among uh, other things, that was published in Salon Magazine online, salon.com. When was it, uh, Dr. Goldstein, a year ago or so, less than that? I think iNanobot went up uh, March 6th. Man, amazing, and and I was blown away when I first read it. So, anyway, great to have you uh, still here with us and uh, the the, uh, listeners as well. So, uh, let's see, here's the one I wanted to get to, okay? You bet. Uh, please ask Dr. Goldstein about artificial intelligence. Well, you know that that's not really my field, but but once again, I'll say what I said before that when we can integrate computing devices with the human neural network, you are going to get synergy. You know, we are not going to be once again, you know, paradise is not going to be exactly like where you are right now, only much, much better, right? So the idea that we can put, you know, millions of little nanobotic processors in our brains, that may be a reality, but when we do it, you know, we're not going to want to just, like, watch TV anymore. And, you know... Right, right, that's right. the thing that blows my mind that that people if if well, we wow, if you wow, have wow, the wow, technology wow, go ahead. well check this out all right uh th- there's there are a couple questions I've been sort of holding back on, but I have to mention now the uh, question from someone who goes by the name of saul on or soul on the on the in the chat room here does dr Goldstein think as soon as the quote unquote politicians get a grasp of the nano thing, they will put it on the schedule one list and forbid its advancement for 40-plus years, as they did with psychedelics, etc. Well, you know, no, they can't, because there's global competition in nanotechnology. So they're more, as I say, they're more worried about us losing the race to China or India. They call it the race to the bottom, by the way. (laughs) That's nice. The new industrial revolution, which is molecular manufacturing, uh, they're much more worried about us losing the race to the bottom. So I, I don't see that happening. Can you see it, it, be, it being used as a drug per se, though? Oh, absolutely. And you know, people have to. People who are interested really need to check out the MIT Nano Soldier site, and it's all. It's actually called the Institute for Soldier Nanotechnologies. And I just sent the. God, link that just gives me a chill. And you know, for example, right off their website, research team three. Okay. The team three is developing protective fiber and fabric coatings for integration in the battle suit. Okay. These surfaces will neutralize or significantly decrease bacterial contaminants 
etc. For example, some investigations include responsive nanopores that close with quotation marks around it. So you have responsive nanopores that close upon detection of a biological agent. <laughs> so what you have to keep in mind now is you're talking about the ability to see in the chemical sense, mm-hmm. to see one molecule or one bacterial cell or one virus. That may be crucial on the battlefield, and everyone could applaud that, but unless your house is airtight, what happens when you know a member of the authorities is walking by your house with some of these self-closing nanopores that detect, you know, you fill in the blank, mm-hmm. you know, Detect your pheromones, you know, they can find out if you've had sex in the last hour or whatever. You know, the ability to, to see at the molecular level, the ability to resolve individual molecules creates the ability to sense individual molecules. So, you know, this stuff's just so like in the airport, right? You're just walking around and somebody's shirt changes from blue to red and that's it. You know, you're carrying whatever their their self-closing nanopores have been programmed to recognize. So what does that do for, for privacy? I mean, the whole issue of privacy, when we have the ability to see individual molecules, it's just the vistas that opens up to me are just, they're mind-boggling. <laughs> we really need to talk about this stuff. And I don't see that dialogue taking place. I mean, no one's going to have to come into your house. You know, anything that that creates a smell, an odor, anything that can be aerosolized, you know, unless you have an airtight nano house, <laughs> you know, that's it. that stuff's going to go out into the air. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're walking around, stuff that's in your pockets, stuff that's in your wallet, you know, stuff that's in your hair. You know, I mean, what does that do for personal privacy when mm-hmm. individual molecules can be seen yeah. and responded to? Yeah, and then, like, reported or whatever, send a message, whatever. Yeah. Um, amazing. It's just, you know, and once again, there's, there's whole, it's just like with the medical aspect of people knowing your genome, you know, how are you going to keep your biochemical privacy? Mm-hmm. You know, when people can see you know, any any molecular you're going to leave you're going to leave literally tens of thousands of molecular trails everywhere you go and the technology will be there to see those trails hmm. so you know how do you protect yourself you know, how are you how is legislation going to deal with molecular level resolution right now we talk in terms of diagnostics Oh, isn't that great? They'll be able to find the you know, one cancer cell. They'll be able to find the first disease molecule. And that is wonderful. But they'll also be able to find that one molecule of, you know, whatever. Or deliver one molecule. Yeah. And so, you know, what about that part of it? You right. know, all of these all of these technologies are dual use right. or multiple use technologies. Gosh, I mean huh. well, um, all right, here's another one. This one uh, is another pretty interesting one. Mike, would you be kind enough to ask Dr. Goldstein to comment on his thoughts about using nanobiotech to possibly record human dreams or personal shamanic journeys for later interpretation? Also, could the future of nanobiotech 
lead up to opening the veil of the afterlife slash ending or death. Now that's that's a better one for Chris Carter, really. But <laughs> what, I, what I will say is this: you know, there's a whole field called neuroethics, which gets down to the concept of well, you know, when we can look inside your brain with things like high resolution imaging techniques like MRI and really begin to see, you know, like when you're thinking about a particular thing, you know, neurons 1, 2, and 4,782 and 10,478,000 are talking to each other. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, we will in fact be in a position to open up at least certain aspects of your thoughts and your dreams. I don't know anything about the afterlife and claim no knowledge of it. But in terms of this life, you know, it may be possible at a certain point to correlate specific types of brain activity with thoughts about specific topics or about specific ideas. And that has spawned the field of neuroethics. But once again, in terms of really having a, a dialogue once you, in terms of treating this thing with the seriousness it deserves, I don't really see it happening. Hmm. Wow, outrageous. All right, uh, let's see. I'll, I'll, I'll give the phone number out one more time. If you want to give us a call here, 573-443-8255. we got a few, uh, a few more minutes to take a phone call or two. And I have some more questions here from the web. So uh, if you want to give us a call, one last chance here. Dr. Alan Goldstein on the line with me. And we're talking about nanobiotechnology on the web at MikeHagan.com. From there, you can find a bunch of interesting stuff uh, related to what we're talking about tonight, okay? All right, let's see. Well, this might be a way to uh, sort of lead toward a a finish of the conversation. Uh, This person says, Sounds like we have the means to do whatever is needed. Sounds like we have the answers, and that a change of mind is what's really required. Well, you know, the problem is we have some of the answers. And the problem is it, it doesn't take a lot to create a dangerous answer. So the example I just gave where if you could make clothing that had nanopores in it that will trap and sense specific molecules. That's not really that far down the road. That's really, we're talking five, ten years down the road. Mm-hmm. Now, what are you going to do with that technology? What will what will be, we're going to have that long before we have cures for certain cancers, unfortunately. But in the meantime, that technology is extremely powerful, whether or not you can cure cancer with it. It gives you the potential you look into other people's lives. It gives you the possibility of saving lives. And so we're going to have to deal with this whole new mindset where we think on a... We have to learn to think in a more molecular manner. And once again, it, I hate to harp on the synthetic biology component, but if you go to their website, it's a classic example of what worries me. It's a, it's a synthetic biology website but if you look at their logo, it's a robotic bacteria. Yeah, it's a little bug with a whole bunch of wires in it and all kinds of things. Yeah, and so I'm saying, whoa, if, if, if synthetic biologists 
don't even have it all work. You know, <laughs> don't even have their terms defined yet. Right, right, right. How how do they expect the rest of us to figure out what they're talking about? Yeah, the language thing is just a huge barrier. In fact, there's an, uh, the same person who asked a question earlier brings up this idea of visible language again, somehow clarifying our means of communication uh, as being one way maybe to help us through this sort of uh, this, this challenge. Well, if, if we, you know, we got through the Cold War, you know, we got through the mutually assured destruction of hydrogen bombs, or at least we've gotten through it so far, and, you know, it's entirely possible that we'll get through this as well. But then again, maybe not. And a good example is if you look at the, if you look at the Synthetic Biology 2 meeting, they have a session on understanding risk, and they have a section on ethical challenges in synthetic biology. And they have a speaker, and if you go to that speaker's website, she has a dictionary, and, and so she's saying, okay, yeah, we need to define our terms. So we have a gene ontology dictionary, which is supposed to help us get our terminology together. But if you type synthetic gene in there, you don't get anything back. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I mean, whoa. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, that was helpful. And I mean, there's a, so like there's a lot of stuff there in name, like, yes, we're thinking about this. Yes, we're thinking about that. But if you go and look, what you'll find is not really. Huh. Hey, what about the possibility of like the rogue element, like the guy in the in his basement or in, in the garage? I mean, is this something that's becoming possible for the average person who, who gets uh, uh, creative and has some ingenuity? Not the average person, but certainly a lot of this technology is going to become cheap and fairly widely available. And unfortunately, that's mostly just been used as a justification for increased bio, quote, defense spending. Right, right, right. Because we're, we're, you know, we're, we're, I hate to say this, but so far as I can determine, we're in total violation of, the biological warfare conventions that we signed. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're, oh, we're making... So, we're so off the radar with so many things right now. It's not even I mean, we're making countermeasures, right? You know, but how do you make a countermeasure if you can't test it? You can't... Everyone knows this, right? Everyone knows you can't make a countermeasure unless you have the measure. Otherwise, how do you know that you've made anything? And so that's why one of the first covenants of biological warfare is there is no such thing as purely defensive research on bioweapons. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we've agreed to that. Everyone's agreed to it. Right. And yet, you know, we're out there making fifth-generation, quote, countermeasures, and what we're really doing is we're just creating new technology that's going to make it simpler for people who didn't even have first-generation bioweapons to make them. Yeah. I mean, they couldn't make them before. We're actually enabling them just in the same way that, you know, although this is just my opinion, that our involvement, you know, for example, in Iraq, and at least according to some reports, the CIA has come to the same conclusion, has actually created more trouble, you know, by giving people a cause to rally around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, we're doing the same thing here in the name of biodefense we're creating tools that are going to make it easier for 
say, not the average person in basement, but for a, a reasonably well-educated and well-provisioned person to build some pretty unpleasant stuff. Hmm. What, uh, this is just me asking now. Oh, that's... Do you see anything on the horizon that might, uh, a breakthrough thing that, that, that could be a grassroots sort of thing that might be able to, to, uh, to sort of overturn or, or, or offset the negative implications? Like may, maybe a, yeah, an, I need an to get Al device, to, maybe, to make something? a movie about it. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, the, th- the thing is, it's very difficult with nanobio to reduce it to a hot button. Right. It has to, it has to be Boolean, like reproductive yeah. cloning. You can mm-hmm. say, you know, should I be allowed to clone myself? Yes or no? Right. Mm-hmm. Should, I, should we be allowed to work with embryonic stem cells? Yes or no? You know, is the earth getting warmer? Yes or no? Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if, you know, I've tried to get some of these groups interested you know, some of these national organizations that are concerned about the welfare of the planet. But I guess nanobio is still too abstract, and I'm not blaming them. So what I do is I just keep trying to write about it and explain it and hope that at some point, you know, the light bulb will go off with somebody, someone in a position to take action that's meaningful, and they'll say, yeah, Oh, I get it. You know, the Shazam right. moment. Like, right. oh, okay. Right. Well, that's usually the way it happens too. So, well, what about uh, what about that? What are you writing right now? You got anything new that's coming out soon? I'm writing. I'm writing an article about the the chaos of <laughs> synthetic biology and artificial life. All right. And yeah. you know, the, and what I'm doing is is looking at concrete examples. You know, there's a journal of artificial life. Like, you can write a paper in the journal of artificial life. The new <laughs> discipline that investigates the scientific, engineering, philosophical, and social issues involved in our rapidly increasing technological ability to synthesize lifelike behaviors from scratch. Amazing. I like that part. From scratch. From scratch. In like computers, machines, molecules, and other alternative media. God, I wonder what the alternative is. <laughs> you have to wonder, like, who's sitting around writing this stuff? I can't you believe know? It. Yeah, this is their PR people, you know. Yeah, you know, I just, I'd love to, like, get a big hypodermic, like, inject a huge dose of irony into these people. I mean, you, know, you talk to these folks, and, you know, it's like the classic engineering, you know, straight face, deadpan, you know, yeah, we can build that. Yeah. You know, like they're building a jet engine or whatever, or but whatever. it's not, you know. And the thing is that once you build it, you know, there's no guarantee that it's going to behave. It's not your pet synthetic life form, you know, unless unless you're very, very careful in the way that you build it. And right now, there are no, like, very, very careful organizations around. So, hey, if you're from, like, you know, the Sierra Club or, you know, any other of these national organizations and you're listening in, you know, send me an email. Let's talk. Yeah, I, mean, I, I don't want to be an alarmist. You know, I don't think Grey Goo is going to take over the earth. But I do say this: if if you would, if you say de facto right up front, this is a world changing technology. Mm-hmm. If if you think that that's the case, then you you should be watching it much more closely than we are currently watching this field. Mm-hmm. And the reason why is that this field 
essentially extends over almost every other field in all of science and technology. What, it, what I say in this new article I'm writing is that it is transcendent when you look at it from the inside. So if you're on the inside, nanotech and nanobiotech covers everything, but it's transparent or invisible from the outside. You know, because it covers so many fields that people who are not in the world of science and technology can't seem to get a handle on it. Mm-hmm. Wow. All right, well, here's another one. Uh, just for me, are you, are you going to uh, start a website or anything like that? Yes, I am. This is time for it's time for me to have a website. Good. I'm going to say you need it. And, and well, I guess, and is your is your your new article coming out going to be published on Salon? I should ask you that as well. Um, I'm, I haven't finished it yet. And actually, I'm, what I'm hoping to do is take the Salon articles, put them together in a book. But remember, at the beginning, I said. I started this grant application that I sent out to try to get yes. funding to write the book yeah, with, yeah, with yeah. a quote from Oppenheimer yeah. and a quote from the editor of one of these publishing houses that said, I'm afraid nanotechnology is just one of those fields that no matter how exciting it gets in real life, will never become a popular book. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like Jack Nicholson in The Shining. Uh, well, great. Lloyd... <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's just I'm going to have to chop my wife's head off now, and I'll talk. I'll come back for my second drink later. I'll have a scotch in a little while, yeah. And you know, it's just it's it's so surreal. Like the the person is basically saying it's incredibly important, and it's incredible. No matter how important and exciting it is, I don't think the public's ever going to be smart enough to get it. And you know, I I hate to I hate to think that that's the case, but. You know, it, it may turn out that way. In the meantime, I'll keep writing and keep talking to folks like you, Mike. I want to thank you right now for having me back on the show. Oh, well. And I want to thank Larry for all the all the cool off-the-wall stuff he sends <laughs> in. I mean that in the best possible way. And, uh, you know, and thank you listeners for listening. I mean, it's always a pleasure, and I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, well, you're you're doing amazing work, and I appreciate uh, all the information that you share with us, Doc. I really do, and we'll be in touch, and we'll do it again because uh, you're uh, you're a great conduit for this stuff, and everybody out there really appreciate uh, appreciates what you uh, what you share with them. So. Yeah, let me just. I mean, you know, I want to say one other thing, please. And that, you know, if you want to communicate with the science and technology community, you have to you have to speak to them in specifics. So that's why I say you can't just talk about gray goo or telepathy or, you know, whatever. You have to pick a particular, and this is why, as I say, things like global warming or stem cells or reproductive cloning, you know, you can, you can get it down to a particular thing that you're concerned about, and then you can focus in on it. And what, ha- what I've noticed with a lot of these, you know, non-government organizations that are concerned about the welfare of the earth and, the impact of technology on it is they they send out a very general anti-technology message. And, you know, that's not going to work because, you know, I've covered a couple of these things and talked to some of these folks for some of these salon articles, and, you know, you ask people, it's the same old thing, like, you know, you're against genetic engineering, but, you know, if, if you were dying from cancer, would you try a drug that had been produced right. by recombinant DNA? And the answer is usually yes. You know, only after like aura balancing, all this other stuff didn't work. You know, but I would try it. You know, and so 
if you just put out a general anti-technology message, you know, you're not going to be able to communicate mm-hmm. with the people who are doing this stuff. Okay. They're just going to turn off to you. And that's why, you know, as someone who's both inside and outside, I try to write things that are credible. You have to you have to keep it within the realm of what's actually happening and not just say, well, you know, nano, bad, you know, organic food, good. <laughs> I just, we have to elevate the level of the discussion, and that's the main reason I write these articles. All right, look, we got to cut it, and I appreciate it, as always. Uh, let me know when you get the website up, and I'll let everyone know, okay? Okay. In the meantime, I'll send some more links to you so your listeners can get get to there from there. Perfect. We'll uh, we'll put it all up, and one more time, thanks, Dr. Coles. Okay, take care. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, everybody, it's Mike. Got to get out of here. I'm going to bail out with uh, one more song from uh, Tobias and Holy Frog. We'll have Cheryl stepping in in just a minute here play some more wonderful music for you for the rest of the evening or at least for a few more hours and it's Mike on the web one more time MikeHagan.com H-A-G-A-N we'll have Jonathan Zapp next week and as I said Holy Frog on the web uh, at HolyFrog.com and Dr. Goldstein find out information about him at MikeHagan.com for now but pretty soon we'll have a website of his own Mm -hmm. 